0: desert and the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be in the world's 25 time zones. Each and every one covered like a blanket by this program, Midnight in the Desert. My name is Art Bell. Rules of our program, oh, so simple. No bad language and one call per show, max. It's going to be an interesting night tonight. We're talking about flying cryptids. You don't know what that means? Stay tuned. We'll fill you in. Our president uh, as is at uh, climate talks in France, uh, trying to keep, uh, along with the rest of the world, the world, from getting too hot to handle, which would mean uh, three degrees Celsius. Three degrees. Can you imagine three Three degrees Celsius to have water everywhere. I've got to tell you what what is going on in France, I hope is mostly about what's going on in Syria. The situation in Syria is really scaring the hell out of me and should scare you too. And I hope that's what they're actually talking about. Even though climate warming is certainly important, having people to to worry for is also important. And the Russians have now installed this incredible new missile battery. These missiles are capable of flying at Mach 5, hitting something at Mach 5. They are missiles that disperse other missiles, very, very high-tech, as good or probably better than what we have. Now, as you know, Turkey, a NATO member, has shot down a Russian jet. They are not going to apologize for it, and because of that, borders uh, close, gas gets turned off uh, to parts of of, uh, uh, Turkey, and uh, all all kinds of terrible things are happening uh, between the Russians and the Turks. And that's bad enough, but uh, I'm telling you with the mix, it's the devil's mix in Syria. And what we have in Syria right now, in my opinion, is a soup that could end up cooking uh, to a boil and becoming World War III. I know that's scary, but I'm going to tell you I'm keeping my eye on it. And uh, the fact that Turkey shot down a Russian plane, bad. Not yet World War III, right? But keep in mind, those of you who haven't been around for a long time, we have a treaty with Turkey. And if Turkey were to really begin mixing it up with the Russians, we have an obligation, a duty, a treaty-bound duty, to come to Turkey's... come help them, right? Right? So if it really gets bad, here's what you should watch for. If you hear of other warplanes getting shot down, if you hear of a U.S. uh, jet getting shot down by the Russians, and they haven't put those things there for nothing, I mean, there are French planes flying and bombing, Russian planes flying and bombing, U.S. planes flying and bombing. Uh, There's bombing going all over the place, going on all over the place over there. So if you begin to see awful things happen, like a U.S. plane getting shot down, or a couple of U.S. planes, or a U.S. plane and a Russian plane getting into a fight, or Turkey shooting down more Russian planes, or an assault of some kind on Turkey, or uh, perhaps somebody's asset at sea gets clobbered, if you see something like that begin to happen take notice, because that would be the opening salvo of World War III. If that happened, I would pack my family up and be off to Southeast Asia as quickly as I could. Not that I think that would help much in the case of World War III. I'm, I'm supposing that nobody much cares about Southeast Asia. So all I might succeed in doing is, uh, you know, having a slow, painful death due to radiation. But I'm trying to drive home to you how dangerous what's going on in Syria is right now, to you. I understand this treaty, the NATO treaty. We, we, we have no choice. If Russia were to attack Turkey in some meaningful way, we would have no choice. And how quickly could that escalate? Well, the people that have studied the possibility of thermonuclear war think pretty quickly. So I'll leave it at that. Shoppers did a lot more on Cyber Monday than they did on, what is it, Black Friday? People are starting to stay home and do their buying on the keyboard. And I wonder what that's going to do to shopping centers, you know? I mean, it's just too easy. You can shop, you can click, you can compare you can get the cheapest price. You can generally get free shipping, maybe no tax. Who knows? It's quite a deal. Eventually, we're all going to just stay home. Now, uh, I told you this story would make uh, the, the bigger news, and it has. Fox News reports that astronomers in Australia have picked up an alien radio signal. Notice how I emphasized alien from space for the first time as it occurred. The signal or radio burst was discovered on May fifteenth, 2014. It was just being reported by the monthly notice of the Royal Astronomical Society. The burst identified within 10 seconds of its occurrence, said Emily Petroff, a doctoral student from Melbourne's SwissBurn University of Technology. The importance of the discovery was recognized very quickly, and we're all working very excitedly to contact other astronomers and telescopes around the world to look at the location of the burst. Now, to give you some idea of the strength of the burst, it released in a few milliseconds as much power as our sun does in 24 hours. The first one actually was discovered back in 2007 but always after the fact. Now they're hearing it real time. One of them was a double burst. So, could it be aliens? Um, Yes. I wouldn't get really excited about it, uh, according to uh, Petrov at this point, but uh, they think it could also be coming from natural sources. So we have now had two things to get pretty excited about, uh, more so than at any time that I've done broadcasting. And that goes back, as you know, a very, very long way. So between the megastructures, which, by the way, despite NASA's attempt at talking about uh, a comet swarm, which is a possibility, still remain every bit as much a mystery as the day they were announced, as now do these radio signals. So we have now had two instances... Of possible alien, uh, contact, or I guess I should say, um, recognizing the fact that they are there in a month. And I went decades waiting for something like that. Alright, coming up in a moment, Ken, uh, Gerhard, Gerhard, Ken Gerhard is a widely recognized cryptozoologist. He's a field investigator for the Center for Foreign uh, Fortine, rather, Zoology, a fellow of the Pangea Institute, and consultant for several anomalous research organizations. He has traveled the world searching for evidence of legendary beasts, including Bigfoot. I almost heard a cheer go up. The Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, Enigmatic Winged Creatures, and Werewolves. In addition to co hosting the History Channel uh, TV series Missing in Alaska, that's an interesting one. We will ask about that, Ken, has appeared uh, in Monster Quest, featured in the uh, History Channel special The Real Wolfman, as well as Legend Hunters, Unexplained Files, Paranatural, Weird, or What? Ancient Aliens, Monsters, and Mysteries in America. Ultimate Encounters, True Supernatural, and The Monster Project. Born on Friday the 13th of October. What a day. Ken has traveled to 26 different countries on six continents, as well as virtually all of the U.S. An avid adventurer, he has camped along the Amazon, explored the Galapagos, hiked the Australian outback, and has visited many ancient and mysterious sites from Machu Picchu to Stonehenge. Here, uh, in just a moment, will come Ken, and he's going to talk about cryptids, very, very interesting cryptids, so stay right where you are. How do you feel about monsters, huh? Tonight, we will bring you monsters galore. Take a seat, grab a cup of coffee,
1: Thanks
0: average of your choice and get ready because here it comes.
2: via Skype, worldwide. If on a computer, please be sure to use a headphone mic and call MITD51. That's MITD51. And here, as promised, Ken Gerhard.
0: I guess that's right. Gerhard, is that Gerhard? I, is that right, Ken? Yeah, Gerhard. Is Gerhard, okay, good, good. Um Welcome to Midnight in the Desert. Well... Thank you, Art. And
3: please allow me to say that it's definitely an honor and a pleasure to be here speaking with you this evening. Um,
0: Great to have you. So you're here to talk mainly, I guess, about cryptids, right? Flying cryptids for the most part. Yeah, that's been
3: kind of a focus of my research through the years. You know, the, the field of cryptozoology is vast, and it's expanding and evolving. It's a movement that's been around for a while, and it encompasses a lot of really strange, bizarre, and unknown creatures. But um uh, I found that the flying cryptids uh, are often neglected by researchers and investigators, my colleagues. So I've, you know... Uh, Kind of been on that particular trail for a number of years now, and I, I've got to tell you, I have accumulated a surprising number of accounts from very credible people who have seen flying creatures that are not recognized by science.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, in a number of forms. When we advertised this, uh, we said flying humans. Now, I guess that's a little—is that a little misleading or? Because these things, uh, what, is is that misleading?
3: Well, here's the conundrum: because a flying humanoid, and keep in mind that the field of cryptozoology was it was a movement that was started by actual zoologists, so it's based on hard science, the fossil history, and so forth. So the notion of a flying humanoid, uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't really fit squarely in there. You know what I mean? So it's but but we do investigate these things as cryptid researchers um, because somebody has to and you know as I mentioned there are literally hundreds of documented sightings of these flying humanoid beings and I imagine that
0: those only are scratching the surface well there you go flying humanoids you just said it Uh, so humanoid like not exactly totally humans um, but humanoid like or partly human and a good example would be Uh, Before the show, I had uh, Ken look up, um, because I didn't want to spring it on him, Aswang, A-S-W-A-N-G. My wife, as you know, is a Filipina, and she is from uh, the southern island of the Philippines, where everybody, everybody believes in the Aswang. And if you guys out there in the audience go to Google, and you um, uh, put in Aswang, A-S-W-A-N-G, uh, and then click on images on Google, you, you can kind of scroll down and you can see all these different photographs as Ken did prior to the show and an awful lot of them, to me look like what we're talking about tonight now, when I tell you my wife believes in the Oswang, I'm, I'm not kidding, I mean she is scared to death of this creature and when you see it, you'll understand why uh, so Ken, when you see the photographs that you know, depict the oswang. Mm-hmm. What do you make of it? Well, the Oswang is
3: actually—it reminds me of s- similar uh, creatures that are reported in other diverse cultures around the world. Uh, for example, um, on the African island of Pemba, there's something known as the papabawa, which is basically a vampire-like creature, not human. Uh, nobody really knows, but it, it flies in uh in the dark of night and attacks and uh kills and eviscerates and people on that island are very terrified of the Papaba to the extent that in the nineteen nineties there was actually a case of mass hysteria on that particular island. So um of course in Mexico, uh very close to where I live we have the Chupacabra of which course people take very very, very seriously south of the border.
0: Oh you know and what yep. I don't know where you are. Are you you're not in Mexico, right? I'm in San Antonio, Texas. San Anto- well, so. you're close. Okay. Mm-hmm. I went to BASIC in San Antonio, so I know exactly where you are. Absolutely. So, you know, again, the, the, it's kind of the interesting
3: thing about the, uh, taking a global global perspective and look at these flying humanoid creatures is there are many similars, similarities in different cultures around the world. Uh, the fear is very real, as you indicated. Uh, the descriptions do vary. And, uh, you know, that that is the really
0: interesting part. Well... In the case of the Aswang, um, unfortunately what it does is find young, uh, newly pregnant women and it takes the fetus from them. It's pretty horrible, pretty horrible. And uh, my wife believes that she heard one on her roof uh, trying to get in, trying really, really hard to get in. And it is, I believe, unique to the Philippines, but as you mentioned, each culture seems to have their own uh, no matter where you go around the world Uh, so there has to be a reason for it Er earlier you used the word uh, uh, mythological and to me that Mm -hmm. implies not real but somewhere at the beginning or the middle or the end of all these things that are cooked up around the world that we believe could be flying and could be killing there is a germ of truth somewhere Gotta be.
3: Well, absolutely. And you know, you hit the nail on the head there. It's really about perspective, isn't it? Because many of the remarkable animal discoveries of the past century started out as quote unquote myths. The mountain gorilla, the giant squid, the Komodo dragon, the giant panda. I mean, all of these animals were considered mythological, except to the people of course that lived in those particular areas and we're familiar with the animals. But to Western science, they were considered mythological. So, cryptozoology is all about kind of bringing the shroud, the veil of mythology down, and
0: revealing that grain of truth behind each myth. Okay. Let's start with the big 100-pound uh, gorilla, so to speak, uh, in the U.S. And that's, uh, that's Bigfoot. I mean, I can do show after show after show on Bigfoot. I talked to a lady in Texas who literally lives... Adjacent to and with the Bigfoot, uh, that's big stuff here. And, uh, people absolutely believe it, and I see why. Um, how does that fit into the, the cryptid? Of course, he, he doesn't fly, but otherwise, very cryptid like, right? Well, Bigfoot really represents cryptozoology
3: art, uh, as does his, uh, as do his cousins around the world, the Yeti or abominable snowman of the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. The Yeren of China, the Yowie of Australia, uh, essentially manlike forms, hominids, um, and evidently of a subhuman, you know, sort of a an ancient subhuman type. So, from a from a zoological standpoint, it makes perfect sense. Listen, Art, for thousands of years there were several different forms, subspecies of humans that were living alongside each other. So why would the present
0: be any different? You say subhuman. We have... Subhuman. Um, we're not really sure of that, are we? And in other words, if, if Bigfoot is a real McCoy, we kind of you know, I I've had people on uh that have played Bigfoot's Bigfoot talking to each other, and it mm-hmm. sounded very intelligent. It sounded like a real language, and we say subhuman but we we don't really know enough to say subhuman maybe they're smarter than we are maybe dolphins are
3: well that's a fair point <laughs> i can't say so perhaps uh, yeah that wasn't the right vernacular but uh they my point being that there were things that looked very similar to bigfoot in our fossil history we know that lived for sure uh hundreds of thousands of years ago right. during the uh, mid pleistocene epoch so why why could those Beings not be around today.
0: Well, they absolutely could. Uh, the, yep. the question is, and the big one always is, how do they stay... Actually, they've got to be pretty bright if they can generally be unseen, mm-hmm. I would say. And that speaks to your point. That
3: speaks to your point. They're, they are Presumably, they are highly intelligent. They're not merely apes. Uh, all of the major a- great apes have been discovered as of 1902. So uh, th- these are... Hominins, probably, you know, our closest, obviously, our closest relatives on the planet. There have been indications of potential language, a basal language. There have been indications of sort of a rudimentary tool use in terms of, you know, stones and rocks. No indication that they use fire. Um, But it's my personal belief that a lot of these uh, these could be adaptations that are basically. That these beings have evolved to avoid contact with humans. That we, they deem us as their primary competition. Um, and thus they've chosen to live in the most remote areas. They've chosen to live, uh, kind of a nocturnal lifestyle. They seem to move around a lot at night. And they are very skillful and adept at avoiding contact with us.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think there is any question at all uh, about? Bigfoot being a reality? I'm I'm convinced, Art, that
3: Bigfoot is a reality. I think um, I am too. The, the, the million-dollar question is, what is it? But uh, you know, there's just it's a mount. There's a mountain of evidence, sir. A mountain of evidence. And uh, most people that are sort of mildly interested aren't are probably aren't acquainted with with all of the evidence. But if, if you immerse yourself in the subject matter and you combine thousands of documented eyewitnesses over the years. All of the the legends, the global legends around the world that correspond, very consistent. And then you factor in the footprints that have been cast, mm-hmm. and uh, the Patterson film. Oh, and, by the way, how do you uh, how, do you, how course, do you come down? How do so you come down on the,
0: on the Patterson film?
3: The first time I saw the Patterson film art, on an instinctive level, I thought that's got to be real. I mean, the movements are so fluid and natural. Mm-hmm. Um, I've watched it, obviously. countless times throughout the course of my life, and it always comes back to the fact that we're talking about uh, an era, 1967, when costume technology was not that advanced. And if you compare the the movements and the size and the bulk of the figure in the Patterson film, the fluidity of of this creature, you can actually see its muscles moving and flexing. Uh, The hair flow pattern is very natural. All of it works in concert together. And, you know, and then if you go and look at uh, any movie from that time period, like the Planet of the Apes movies, and you realize how, uh, you know, primitive costume technology was in those days. <laughs> um, you know, I'm convinced the Patterson film is real. Um, I guess it'll always be kind of uh, inconclusive. You know, there's uh, no one's going to be able to prove it either way. They've never produced a suit. Um, but... You know, then again, the, uh, the creature got away. It did leave footprints. And so, you know, that, that kind of added
0: to the evidence as well. Um, Ken, you know what really uh, bothers uh, me? If we, if we were to get the equivalent of the Patterson film today and we got it digitally, nobody would believe it. And, and I say that because we live in a time of CGI that is Mm -hmm. so good that it can be made to be better than the real thing because they get all the exact angles they want. Um I saw the recent uh, earthquake film. Uh, Do you see that, San Andreas? No. Oh, no. Uh, mm-hmm. that, 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 it, yeah. that was the king of CGI. They destroyed California. And it mm-hmm. was so real that, you know, you were sitting on the edge of your seat. I mean, that's how good CGI is. So if we got a modern equivalent to the Patterson uh, film... I think that people would shoot holes in it because it's just so easy now to fake. Not then, but now. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And for that reason, I actually, I disregard a lot of the photographic evidence. Or I should say I debunk a lot of the photographic evidence that I'm um, given these days because a lot of it has been manufactured. You know, it is very easy for someone with the skill and the software to devise something like that. But in 1967, that wasn't the case. And, uh, you know, Patterson, uh, people that knew Roger Patterson thought he was a, a stand, you know, he was a bit of a character, but he, he was a very simple man. And, uh, I, you know, I honestly don't think that he had the resources and the mind to conceive of, of a hoax that brilliant. And, you know, furthermore, Art, there have been physical anthropologists that have studied that film, men much smarter than I am uh And experts in biomechanics who've studied it and have determined that the figure in the film is moving in a very non human fashion its mo its mode of locomotion, locomotion, although it is bipedal, is very different from a human's and it actually corresponds exactly with what you would have to have to propel a bipedal hominid that weighs several hundred
0: pounds mm-hmm. through those forests okay all right well. We're coming up on a break, uh, Ken, but I want you to think about something uh, during the break, and I ask this of everybody who talks about Bigfoot and these kinds of creatures, frankly, in general, and that is if you were, I don't know, out in the forest somewhere and you saw a Bigfoot, there it is. You've got a high-powered rifle. You can actually settle for once and forever, the fact that, you know, Bigfoot is real, you can be the king of cryptozoology forever. All you've got to do is squeeze that trigger and take it down, and the whole thing gets settled. Would you pull that trigger or walk away? This is Midnight in the Desert.
1: Someone like you in my life. A love that's strong, out, holding me through the dark sky.
2: Midnight in the desert doesn't scream calls. We trust you, but remember the NSA. Well, You know. To call the show, please dial 1-952-225-5278. That's 1-952-CALL-ART. Ken Gerhard is here. He's a cryptozoologist. He
0: um, talks about these things that uh, that we discuss so frequently here on the air. Right now it's Bigfoot. Uh, just before we get back to it, I, wa- I want to read something from uh, Dave. I won't give Dave's last name. Dave says, boy, it'd be stupid to claim treaty obligations or even think about them when Turkey is the aggressor. You'll soon see NATO dissolve over this, guaranteed, Art. Dave, um, you don't understand, buddy. NATO is uh, a locked-in group, and NATO's not going to dissolve. And if, somebody, if a NATO country is attacked, Dave, we're at war. You need to understand that. We're at war. And you you need to understand what that means. I really think an awful lot of today's generation doesn't have a clue. They don't have a a clue about our treaty obligations, uh, the ones that uh, we're really stuck with, and the ones that I guess we could let slide. It it could happen. All right, uh, Ken, welcome back again. And uh, so I... Gave you the big question. There it is. You've got, you're out in the middle of the woods. You've got them in your sights. You've got a high powered rifle. You can settle this question for all of humanity. You drop the Bigfoot. You bring them in, have them examined. You are the king, as well as the villain, of all of cryptozoology. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah, what would you do? Well, that is
3: uh, definitely a hot button topic in the field of uh, Bigfoot. Kill or no-kill is the the debate that's been going on for years. You know, honestly, Art, I I, I think several years ago when I was uh, uh, kind of getting started in the field, I would have absolutely pulled the trigger, and not for selfish reasons, not for money, not for fame, but because I really felt that the only way to protect Bigfoot was to prove conclusively 100% that it existed, and it has been estimated that there are probably uh at least several hundred if not a couple of thousand individuals in North America alone you would have to have that in order to maintain a viable breeding population so if you shoot one you're not not necessarily shooting the last one but you know um where i'm sitting now um i you know i think through the years that i've begun to view these beings uh you know as truly sentient and um I, I know that i've read many accounts of people that have actually had them in their in their sights uh hunters and so forth that have actually yes. not been able to pull the trigger because they said that the things just looked so darn human right uh and you know could you live with yourself uh you know if you shot this thing and realized that essentially that is that is a human a human form so um i would say right now in this place in time no i i probably couldn't do it um but um you know i am I'm, I'm hopeful that someone will eventually find remains i mean if these these things are out there they're they're dying of natural causes uh, well okay that's a really somewhere. good place
0: to stop you and and ask uh the big question and that is sure if they are real in the same sense that we are um then there should be remains and and we haven't found those So you've got to at least entertain the possibility that there is sort of paranormal in some way or another, and I'm sure you get that a lot. What do you think?
3: Yep, I I do actually have been asked that question a lot, particularly in recent years. You know, I get the sense that uh, we're kind of moving through sort of a a rebirth of the spiritualist movement where people are very much embracing the paranormal and sort of cosmic, otherworldly um, aspects to our... our, uh, Dimension and so forth. So, um, yeah, that that is probably a, a strong argument why we haven't found a body that they're simply stepping out into another dimension or through a doorway or a portal. Um, there seem to be a, there does seem to be a segment of Bigfoot sightings that have kind of really strange aspects where they've been shot at point blank range and are impervious to bullets, or uh, where they're seen running and their tracks just disappear in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, coming from a traditional cryptozoology background, um, I still like to kind of uh, hedge my bets and, and think that these are essentially uh, pre-human. Uh, forms hominids from from an earlier age that are that are essentially still around and they're highly intelligent and art. Who's to say that these things aren't capable of burying their own dead? You know, maybe that's one of the reasons we haven't found their remains. Very true. Uh, you know, they they've obviously evolved and adapted behavior patterns to avoid being found by humans because they they probably think that you know once they are found out uh, that'll essentially be the end of them.
0: Ken, have you actually interviewed somebody who has um, had a clear shot and taken it at what he thought was a Bigfoot?
3: Uh, yeah, I actually um, I I knew a gentleman or a group of gentlemen that were actively in, uh, investigating and, and researching Bigfoot years ago. And according to them, they actually did take a shot and uh, end up wounding one of the creatures. And, um, oh. you know, it's, it's kind of a, a, a grisly story. The the thing got away, thank goodness. Um, but, um, and, you know, I, th- I think maybe that was kind of a bit of an awakening for some of those gentlemen because I sensed after the fact that they realized, um, you know, what they had done. But, uh, perhaps they got caught up in the heat of the moment. Um, You know, there have been accounts, this is interesting, you were talking about Asia earlier. Mm -hmm. There actually have been a a handful of accounts from Asia of Bigfoot-type creatures being either captured or killed. Oh, yes. Uh, Oftentimes oftentimes in a war scenario. I'm sure you've heard of the stories, too, the rock apes of Vietnam and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, So there could potentially be remains out there somewhere in another part of the world. And, uh, boy, I sure wish we could get our hands on that evidence.
0: Well, so do I. Uh, Let's move on because really we were here to talk about flying cryptids and we have not yet touched on that. And I guess a good place to begin would be Mothman, possibly? Wow. Well,
3: Mothman art is obviously one of the most enigmatic figures in the Annals of the Unexplained. I mean, the physical description is is pretty pretty wild. A gray man-like creature standing over six feet tall with immense wings attached to its body, um... Mothman really is the quintessential monster. I mean, it's almost like something that stepped right out of a science fiction movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, most eyewitnesses have described it as possessing a low-slung head with a two enormous eyes. And that, th- that's the most startling feature of the Mothman, these giant blood-red embers that like automobile reflectors that seemingly have a hypnotic uh, effect over humans. I really, and, really, really you know, can. I, I so go ahead.
0: I, I'm sorry. I don't like red eyes, Ken. Not even a little.
3: Wow, so this is kind of hitting a nerve, huh, these giant red eyes? Are you envisioning that?
0: Yeah, I don't like that. I, I really, really, I, I mean, there are a few things in life that scare me. Red eyes, definitely one of them. Uh, when I was a kid, I always envisioned red eyes in my closet, and I kept the door shut, the closet door shut, all the time for that reason. Mm. Anyway, so Mothman is said to have red eyes, huh? glowing red
3: Eyes. red eyes and uh some people have claimed that you know when they were looking into these eyes that they basically lost you know all control uh fell into a hypnotic trance like state mm. um but the really the really frightening thing is that mothman's behavior um there have been many accounts of mothman chasing cars at, at speeds approaching 100 miles an hour uh his sole purpose seems to be to absolutely terrify human beings um and you know, obviously, the the story is that there were literally dozens, or according to researcher John Keel, hundreds of sightings of the Mothman beginning in November of 1966 uh, with the Scarberry Mallet sighting, and then over the course of that next year, um, there were literally you know dozens or hundreds of sightings of this Mothman creature in and around the sleepy little town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. If you
0: have any, uh, if you have any specific stories you can tell about. The appearance of Mothman. I'd love to hear him
3: Well, uh, the seminal sighting involved uh, two young couples, uh, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Stephen Mary Mallet. They were cruising around outside Point Pleasant in an area known as the the TNT area. And the reason it's called that artist, but back during World War II, they were using there was actually a factory there that was manufacturing TNT for the war effort and other huh. chemicals. Okay. Um, it's a it's a pretty wild place. It's actually to this day there's about a uh, 60 to 100 concrete igloo-like structures where they stored the explosives and these these hazardous chemicals. Um, but by the 1960s, this was a hangout for the local teenagers. So they were basically just cruising through this area one night, November 15, 1966, and suddenly near an old abandoned building known as the power plant, they saw this figure. And the description was, you know, six and a half seven feet tall, giant bat-like wings. Uh, coming out of his shoulders and the giant red eyes. And, of course, they saw this thing, and they were <laughs> utterly terrified. Uh, they took off back towards town, and to their horror and chagrin, the Mothman actually took off straight off the ground, and that's significant, like a helicopter, and chased them all the way back to the town of Point Pleasant. They disappeared into the of town, and they were so terrified that they went to the local sheriff's office And, um, burst in and and filed a report. And the sheriff who was on duty, Deputy, uh, Dennis Hereford, was, uh, he actually knew the the couple, uh, the two young couples. Point Pleasant is a very small town, of course. Everyone knows everyone. And he knew them to be, you know, fairly upstanding and honest citizens and thought that they were basically scared witless. Mm -hmm. Um, so he, so they returned to the scene. They didn't see the Mothman, but they heard some strange noises. And, um, you know, that was it. That, that kind of started the whole, the whole movement. Um, uh, the next night there were hundreds of people out at the TNT area looking for Mothman. And, uh, another woman named Marcella Bennett, uh, who was visiting some friends nearby the TNT area, claimed that the Mothman actually rose up behind her car when she got out of her car, uh, causing her to collapse in a trance-like state and fall on top of her infant child. So those are the kind of the two seminal sightings of the Mothman that, that started the entire affair.
0: Would the description uh do, do we see uh let's see, is this Mothman? Uh we've got a couple of drawings I know on the site. And um God, they're ugly. Um if you go to artbell.com and click on my guest information, we've got a couple of things here. Uh and I'm trying to figure out how such a creature I mean most everything we know that has wings takes gathering a little forward speed to get off the ground. They can't go straight up, or can they?
3: No, you're absolutely right. You have certain laws of physics and inertia and momentum and so forth that all flying creatures born on this earth uh, typically have some type of forward thrust or movement. Right. And so, again, many of the descriptions of Mothman... It was a very unnatural movement. This thing took, st- took off straight off the ground without flapping its wings. Essentially, didn't flap its wings while in flight. It was, a, it was more of a glider and, and moved at just impossible speeds, you know, 100 miles an hour. So um, it, it definitely did not behave like anything that has evolved uh, on this planet, anything that we can find in our fossil history.
0: Even Superman had to take Quite a few steps and then a bound, I believe, to get going. (laughs) Uh, I'm just kidding, but yeah, straight up, that's bothersome. And again, it seems to, you know, lead toward the paranormal more than not. That that's if I pause like that, Ken, that's a chance for you to jump in. Yeah, um, absolutely. And
3: you know, as again, as a cryptozoologist. I tend to look for more the more pragmatic explanations. And, for example, there's kind of an absurd theory out there that some cryptos will always have put forward that uh, what Mothman was, in fact, was some type of large owl that people mistook for something else, and it created mass hysteria. Well, certainly I don't believe that, uh, based on all of the research that I've done. Um, the only conclusions I can draw, Art, is that Mothman is some type of spectral entity or apparition. Um, whether you want to say or speculate that it is a an extraterrestrial, whether it's an interdimensional being, um, a demonic, there are many different ways that people look at this phenomenon. Um, but, you know, essentially it is not of this earth. It's not a flesh and blood creature in the way that we know it. Um, you know, at least that's my opinion. And
0: then uh, I guess that brings us to something known as the Owl Man. What is that?
3: Yes, Owl Man is uh, England's version of, essentially England's version of the Mothman. It's a very huh. similar creature in terms of um, it's often seen in the same location. Um, it has the, uh, hate to say it, Art, it's got the large glowing red eyes, once again. Wonderful. Um, but but uh, the descriptions are somewhat different. Owl, Owl Man, which has been sighted uh, primarily in the grounds and woods surrounding an old... Church in Cornwall, England, known as Mount Ann Church. It's it's right there on the coast. And in in a, uh, interestingly, the church is said to be built on an ancient earthwork. Um, but the owl man is described as essentially man-sized and winged, but with grizzled gray fur or feathers, pointy ears, a sneering, gaping black mouth, not a beak, and feet like pincers or crab claws. Wow. And What's interesting is that all of the encounters have been in the woods around this old church, and virtually all of the witnesses, and the sightings began in 1976, in the spring and summer of 1976, that all of the witnesses have been essentially teenage girls uh, and one adolescent uh, male. Um, huh. Now, my colleague, my colleague John Downs in England, has written a seminal book on the owl man, and what's interesting is that he believes that he's experienced a great deal of what we call psychic backlash while investing this particular case. Uh, all kinds of unfortunate things that happened to him. And, you know, very reminiscent of the Mothman, where you have allegations of this curse, this death curse, that people that are involved in the Mothman have been harassed by the men in black or have met kind of uh, mysterious and untimely ends.
0: Really? Um. Okay, so the implication of that would be that our own government, at some level, knows something about these things. And and I can't imagine they wouldn't. I mean, if there are re- reliable reports of creatures that are able to fly, whether it's the American or British government, you would definitely think there would be an interest in finding out what they are. I mean, who knows? They could be weapons, right? Turned into weapons mm-hmm. on the battlefield. So the U.S. government, British government, I would think would have interest in them, hence the Men in Black
3: Yes, uh you know, and John Keel, of course, who wrote the the famous Mothman prophecies book and kind of uh was there in the moment during the 1966-67 flap. Um he certainly believed that there was government involvement, that his phones were being tapped, that he was being followed and harassed. He spoke to many of the Mothman eyewitnesses that came forward claimed that they were harassed and um threatened into silence. Uh so there are that elements of the case as well. Now Art, don't you think it's interesting that the Mothman, most of the sightings of the Mothman were in this TNT area, essentially a place that represented the manufacture of explosives and and hazardous chemicals and other things that were going to be used in a war effort as
0: well? That's kind of a bizarre tie-in right there, I think. Sure. I I don't understand the tie-in necessarily, but yes, it's interesting. Of course it's interesting. Um. You have? Do you have any speculation about why?
3: Well, well, you know, as I've researched a lot of these flying humanoid beings throughout history, I found that there is a underlying belief that these beings, whatever they are, are essentially harbingers or or portents of tragic cataclysmic events. In the case of Mothman, you have the tragic collapse of the Silver Bridge, which occurred in December of 1967, uh, right around the time Mothman was being seen. And interestingly enough, the sightings of Mothman, you know, dramatically reduced after that. You have in antiquity you have Pazuzu. Uh, Pazuzu was uh, a Sumerian, I'm sorry, an Assyrian uh, winged humanoid type of figure that was often associated with famine and uh, drought and all of these horrible events. And then, you know, going across the world to Scotland, you have something known as the Scree. The Scree is a flying humanoid type of creature, uh, kind of a hideous witch, similar to the Oswang, I guess, in some ways, that is said to overfly battlefields before uh, many people have been killed and things like that. So All there's right. this underlying theme that these flying humanoids, whatever they are, are essentially omens. Hold it right there, Ken. We'll be right
0: back. I'm Art Bell.
2: Exclusively on the Dark Matter Digital Network with Art Bell. Invite you to call now. one call art That's one 225 5278 Ken Gerhardt is here, and he's a cryptozoologist, mostly talking about the
0: cryptids that fly. Uh, perhaps a little misleading to say flying humans, but uh, they are, in fact, partly human, actually. Um, all right. Uh, so Ken, you're back again. You said something that really caught my attention. You said they're frequently regarded as, as harbingers of something, awful happening or that's happened or whatever, right? Yes, I oh. found
3: that in you know in antiquity and different legends around the the world, creatures that are depicted as being similar to the Mothman, and there are many examples, uh, were greatly feared by those you know, different local peoples because they represented a tragic event okay. uh, to come. All right.
0: Well, Keith, if you're listening, uh, I'm so sorry to ask this again, but there was a ton of photography done around the tragedy that was 9-11. Uh, mm-hmm. again. I don't know if you've ever seen this photograph, but if you haven't, I'm going to fix it so you can see it. It was uh, a photograph taken during the 9-11 tragedy and it showed God, I'm telling you Ken I can't get over it. I, I'll never get over it. It showed uh, and you had a building as a reference for size. This giant prehistoric something or another Ken that was flying in the skies in New York while this was going on and somebody caught it in a photograph and if I can Somebody will send Keith, or Keith hasn't put it up, whatever. If we can get it up there, I'll get it up there, and you can take a look. You're not by any chance familiar with what I'm talking about, are you?
3: Uh, I believe I've seen that photograph, yeah. I'll I'll have to see it again. Maybe it'll jog my memory. Well, I was going to ask,
0: Uh, uh, what is that thing? It looks prehistoric.
3: I've certainly heard allegations, unsubstantiated allegations, that Mothman or a Mothman-type figure was seen before 9-11. Um, the photograph, um, we're going to have to take a look at that. Is that up yet? Not yet. Keith moves quickly, but not that quickly, so I'll, I'll keep an eye okay. out for it. We'll,
0: we'll, okay, we'll take a look.
3: That's that's interesting. I'd like
0: to see that for sure. Well, when you said uh, Harbinger, I, I couldn't resist. Uh, I've wondered for a long time what that is. All right, so I know you've got specific stories you can tell us about things that have affected people that you really think, you know, um, are real, really happened. Things that really happened. Any any cases, and we've got the time. So if you've got some good cases, lay them on us.
3: Well, there's some classic cases, Art, that are pretty creepy and and honestly very frightening. Uh, For example, in 1956, in a place called Falls City, Nebraska, uh, a gentleman, a farmer, who uh, used a pseudonym, John Hanks, when he actually reported the event, uh, obviously didn't want to be exposed. But uh, according to this gentleman, this farmer, he encountered a being uh, while working out in his field one day, and this thing basically overflew him at a height of about 15 feet. And the description is is pretty chilling. He said that this this figure had a human-like form, would have been about nine feet tall. Um, The wings were not actually, you know, organic wings. They were mechanical, sort of silver mechanical wings with a row of lights going down them about 15 feet across. And this being whatever it was, was operating these wings and flying with a control panel strapped to his chest. But the really chilling part was the description of the face. The face, he described the face as looking demonic with these blue watery eyes and wrinkled sort of leathery skin and a, and a scowling frown on its face. And as he watched this thing, it just sort of uh, hovered over him ominously and then kind of took off. Uh, another one that I'm, I'm quite fond of um, for similar reasons is uh, refers to the extraordinary bird woman of Da Nang, Vietnam. And um, apparently, according to a... Uh, a Marine uh, by the name of Earl Morrison. He, related, he relayed this story to a UFO researcher named Don Worley. During the Vietnam War, he was stationed along with two other buddies uh – and on top, you know, sort of on watch, watchtower-type situation, and they saw a figure approaching in the distance, and at first they thought it was a very large bat, but they realized quickly that this thing was much larger than any bat they had ever seen before. And as this figure got closer and closer, they were able to make out that it was actually the form of a nude-winged woman, completely black in color, her you know, seemed to be covered in kind of a black fur or hair-like substance, really? and bat-like wings, um, and that she essentially she hovered like right over, flew right over their heads, uh, peering down at them kind of ominously. And, and she seemed to be giving off kind of a green cast or a green glow. Um, so that was kind of a very unnerving experience that these three gentlemen, uh, you know, had. And what's really interesting again there, Art, is that, you know, we're talking about a battle, you know, type scenario. Okay. So that, you know, these flying humanoids are often reported around military installations. Or over battlefields, things of that nature. Um, but you know, certainly not all the accounts are very old. I have a lot of modern accounts that I uh, chronicle in the in my book, Flying Encounters with Flying Humanoids. And in fact, there I continue to receive accounts of these flying humanoid-type creatures. Um, one of the most recent was a gentleman that lived out in West Texas. Uh, he caught in touch with me, and he uh, I interviewed this gentleman over the phone many times, and he comes off as an extremely sincere and credible and What he tells me is that he was out one night with his wife kind of looking at the stars uh, in an approaching storm system, and similar to the bird woman of, of da Nang, they saw this figure approaching them, and when it got right over their heads, he said it was essentially a man like creature with long flowing hair and giant black angelic wings. And he said this thing would have stood about 10 or 14 feet tall. It had very high cheekbones and a kind of a chisel look to its face, facial features. Wow. And, uh, you know, again, it, it soared right over their heads. So, you know, th- those
0: are just some examples, but, you know, there are many, many more. Well, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to say this. Um, it may not seem like it, but if you could somehow control these creatures uh, during battle, and you could make these things appear to your enemy. You know, listen, most of us feel that way. Frankly, if I saw something with glowing red eyes, you know, hovering in front of me, I'd probably toss down whatever I had and go in the other direction. And so they would be a big asset uh to anybody who could control them on a battlefield. No question about it, right? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Okay. And you know, there's there's also been
3: speculation that these things are extraterrestrial in nature. Could these be the the familiars or the or the uh, the instruments of some higher intelligence? You know,
0: probes essentially. Well, are there appearances aso- associated with um, uh, UFO sightings that sort of thing?
3: Absolutely, Art. Well, they are. Um, at, at the, the the time period when the Mothman was being sighted uh, in and around Point Pleasant, West Virginia there were UFO sightings, strange lights in the sky that were being reported to the local law enforcement agencies almost on a nightly basis. Uh, In fact, if you go back and look at the newspaper archives at that time, you've got literally as many reports of strange flying lights and UFO-type objects as the Mothman itself around that same time period and in that same area. Additionally, uh, many of the flying humanoids that I've investigated in Mexico, and for some strange reason, Mexico seems to be ground zero for the flying humanoid phenomenon, really a lot of reports coming out of Mexico. Um, and a lot of those have been logged by UFO investigators um, that are essentially you know, ex- videotaping these strange flying humanoid creatures um, in conjunction or in areas where they've also videotaped you know, flying objects.
0: All right. Since we're on that subject, uh, are there any good videos uh, or even fair videos of what we're talking about right now? Something that it would be a flying cryptid. Uh, has anybody caught it on camera or on video?
3: You know, in terms of the flying humanoids, there are several videos that can be found on online, and these were made by Mexican UFO researchers and. These are referred to as unidentified flying humanoids (UFHs). Um, Now, the videotape quality is not that great. Essentially, what you're going to see in these videotapes are you're going to see a man-like figure. I mean, you can definitely make out two legs hanging down, two arms hanging down. But these these are very different from the Mothman. They don't have any wings or any visible means of propulsion. Um, But these figures, whatever they are, essentially hovering around or flying around high up in the uh, atmosphere um and they have been videotaped in many locations around Mexico going back to the year 2000 um and again in areas where UFOs have been reported as well okay. so i do cover these in the book because they do seem to be related in many ways to the mothman type figure um although they do not have wings or any visible way to fly they're they're just merely up there very high in the air flying around okay
0: since you're um in san antonio Please comment for me on the chupacabra because when I was on the air, um, you know, a decade or two ago, the chupacabra thing was actually going on at the time. I saw some pretty awful pictures of what the chupacabra did uh, and pictures that were represented to be a chupacabra. Uh, what do you know about that thing? Well,
3: uh, that's one of the, the questions I get asked the most because they're they're... Seem to be many different things going on here. The chupacabra is a case of of composite identity where one particular word or name is being used as kind of a blanket to explain a lot of different weird things. But obviously the original chupacabra uh, originated in Puerto Rico during the 1990s when there were a series of very uh, grotesque livestock killings. And the name chupacabra, the literal translation is goat sucker right um so it's a vampire like creature and of course, the initial descriptions that came out of Puerto Rico and other Latin American countries describe this uh kind of a gargoyle type creature uh bipedal with a reptilian right. uh quality and and giant eyes right right um but here in Texas over the past uh oh decade or so, there have been other animals that have been turning up, that have been referred to as chupacabras. Uh, they they always make it into the newspaper, onto the local news channel. Now, I've examined about a half dozen of these animals myself, the remains of these animals, and they are essentially, def- they are grotesque-looking canids or dog-like animals. Um, they are completely hairless. They have kind of a rough hide-type covering, almost like an elephant. Uh, in many cases, they have abnormally large teeth, canine teeth or fangs, Mm -hmm. long claws, and so forth, and they're they're very grotesque and ugly-looking, and there have been allegations by some of the local ranchers and livestock owners that these dog-like animals are drinking the blood of their livestock. Mm -hmm. Uh, That has not been substantiated scientifically, but because there is a very strong uh, Mexican-American influence here in Texas and other parts of the southern United States, uh, you have that Uh, That cultural influence, essentially, that crossover aspect where you have these strange-looking animals, uh, predators that are showing up, and people are referring to them as chupacabras when they are, in fact, completely different from the creature, whatever it is, that was reported from Puerto Rico uh, beginning in the
0: 1990s. Okay. Now, whether it's a chupacabra or something with glowing red eyes, no thank you, uh Are there any reports? I, I have this feeling that if these things are perhaps demonic in nature, it seems mm-hmm. like demonic things, ghosts, whatever, cannot actually harm, physically harm people. They can attempt to drive people into doing bad things, but they can't seem to actually manipulate in our physical universe. Uh And I wonder if that is... True of these these flying cryptids as well. In other words, are there reports of people getting torn to bits by these things, or generally, do we not get reports of physical attacks?
3: Ah, well, uh, another great question. Actually, um, and I address this in my book as well. There are no documented accounts of anyone actually being physically attacked by a flying humanoid or Mothman-type creature, although there are many, many accounts of Mothman, Owlman, and other flying humanoid creatures chasing and terrorizing humans. So they do, in fact, seem to, for whatever reason, they want to terrify us. They want to frighten us. Uh, um, uh, you know, I, I guess if you want to characterize that as demonic, then then that's fair. You know, this reminds me of an interesting sighting, uh, a case that occurred... Uh, Fairly recently, in 2006, and this refers to the, the man bat of Briggs Road, Wisconsin.
0: I'd leave you a, a photo of this up on your website. Um, okay, wait. I want to know which one it is. The man bat. Um, is that the the first one or the, the second one? It's oh, the first one. The first one. Ugly as sin. All right. Go ahead. Yes.
3: And uh, that, that illustration, incidentally, is is uh, by Linda Godfrey, who I believe you uh, had as a guest on your show. That's um, correct. Th- that's her interpretation. But uh, according mm-hmm. to Linda, who was the initial investigator, these two gentlemen of Native American descent were driving home one evening uh, in a place called Holman, Wisconsin, which is uh, very close to La Crosse. And suddenly this creature that you see there uh, dived out of the, the treetops and basically dive-bombed their the pickup truck they were driving in and they described it as having a human-like form with bat-like wings, a hideous face with long fangs, and uh, kind of a pronounced rib cage and long claws. Well, this thing dive-bombed their pickup truck and took off, and shortly thereafter they could hear this ringing noise, um, a very high-pitched ringing noise that actually forced them to pull over to the side of the road where they both became violently ill. Um, Hmm. Shortly thereafter they got home, and began to experience all kinds of strange things. Their dog, which was normally very affable and friendly, was hiding and cowering under the bed. Um, they were hearing strange noises, banging noises around the outside of their house, as if something, some type of uh, unseen force, was banging in, on, on their walls and harassing them. Um, so this is, you know, just an example of kind of the attachment aspect of these of the flying humanoid phenomenon. Not only are these flying humanoid creatures. Uh, seemingly interested in terrifying and chasing and scaring the bejesus out of people, but oftentimes there is a residual attachment effect where people will actually experience all kinds of bad feelings and illness and and kind of heebie-jeebies
0: after the event takes place. Okay. In addition, you say that um, people who experience these things are frequently then either questioned or harassed by men in black?
3: Well this is something that has been documented by or was primarily documented by again John Keel, author of Mothman Prophecies. Now he no one was in the thick of it like Keel. He was actually there on the ground um, shortly after Mothman was first reported in Point Pleasant. He interviewed many of the eyewitnesses and according to Keel many of the eyewitnesses claimed that they were, in fact, visited by strange men in black-like figures. Excuse me. In fact, uh, a woman named Mary Heyer, who was a local newspaper reporter there in Point Pleasant, Mm -hmm. claimed that a strange figure visited her at her office one time, and she said that he spoke in a strange, halting voice, almost as if English was a foreign language. Excuse me. And uh, that he kind of had a fascination a strange fascination for sort of the mundane objects that were laid across her desk. But the message was, in fact, very real, that he he did not want her to be reporting these Mothman accounts in the local newspaper and actually became kind of threatening uh, in terms of his tone and, and demeanor and so forth.
0: Very be like Yeah, that's really curious, Um, very, very curious. And I can only, you know, if you sit down and try and imagine, well, why would... Our government or their agents be interested in this sort of thing. Again, I go back to the possibility of their use, uh, in terrorizing an enemy. That's, that's all I can think of. Uh, or, or if you want to get, uh, even a little further down the road of, uh, strange conjecture, it could be that in some government lab somewhere, they created these damn things. Well, so those, are, those
3: are certainly two of the theories that have been suggested, you know, that uh, Mothman is some type of diabolical uh, military experiment, um, you know, that perhaps Mothman rose up out of the sort of the cosmic uh, chemicals and uh, some of those other, you know, kind of like a mutation that kind of rose up there in Point Pleasant, you know, mm-hmm. but
0: perhaps it was some type of intelligent design. I also had a lady who called I think we were in an open line segment or maybe it was we were doing something on Bigfoot and she said that some something like a Bigfoot actually ran into her car in other words she was going down the highway and this thing came from the side and hit happened to hit the the side toward the rear of her car and there was a fair amount of damage it, whatever it is, got away, but it actually just apparently wanted to run into her car. That's pretty weird, huh? That is pretty weird. Um, I don't think
3: I've heard of uh, an account quite like that. I've heard of many people who uh, who claim that Bigfoot type creatures have chased their vehicles, similar to the Mothman, mm-hmm. um, or jumped out at them, you know, sort of as they were changing a flat tire on the side of the road on a on a dark and lonely road, that type of thing.
0: You know, isn't that always the way? You're on a dark, lonely road. Your car's not running, and you've got a flying cryptid after you. Mm. God, that's scary. Um, So why so much in Mexico, Ken? Um,
3: Well, I think a couple of reasons, possibly. Um, Mexico, of course, has... um, for those of your listeners that are familiar, and I'm sure many of them are familiar, with the court of the ancient alien aspect uh, or tie into Mexico, you have all of these um, great civilizations that sprung up there: the the Olmec and the Zapotec and the Aztec and the Maya, right. and uh, you know, civilizations that obviously had, uh, you know, a very perplexing level of technology and and, mathematic and 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 knowledge of astronomy and different things like that um... so you know the inference of course is that there have been perhaps uh... you know extraterrestrial uh... landing spots i guess you would say in mexico now when i was investigating a uh... flying humanoid type creature uh, just outside of monterey mexico back in two thousand nine Um, I was taken to a a mysterious place known as La Huasteca, which is in the Sierra Madre Mountains just outside of Monterey, and there in a kind of a sacred spot are these ancient pictographs on the side of this uh, rock wall that are thousands of years old. Nobody really knows how old they are, and they seem to depict uh, strange circular objects flying around in the sky. Um, so, you know, that's just yet another example of why, you know, Mexico seems to have been a UFO hotspot for probably thousands of years. Uh, and, of course, in recent years, you have many, many sightings of um, uh, UFOs down there as well. Um, but th- there are many accounts of these flying humanoid creatures in and around Monterey, in and around Mexico City, um, and, uh so Mexico just for whatever reason seems to be ground zero. And I, I wish I could explain it better than that art, but it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a pretty,
0: it's a pretty fascinating place. Well, whether it's Bigfoot or these flying crypto, cryptids or it's UFOs in Mexico, I wish we could pin all this down and uh, come to some kind of conclusion about it, but it seems always just out of reach. Just mm-hmm. out of being able to actually prove something. Uh, and yet it keeps coming back and tantalizing us with appearances, uh, showing us things, uh, UFOs, God knows I've had my own, uh, sightings. I think mm-hmm. most people have, and, and yet it just stays at arm's length from us, uh, in terms of actual proof. Just like Mothman. Yeah. just just like yeah, uh, bigfoot all of these things share that that's why i think people uh, like myself tend to say it's got to be in the paranormal category and and for that matter u- ufology some of ufology may even be because they disappear they appear uh if you've seen one you can't unsee it i mean it i've seen a ufo up close too close and I will never unsee that that will be planted in my brain forever I know that other people who have not seen doubt and even make fun of the whole thing but it's going on Ken there's no question about it I, I have a feeling it's the same with these, these cryptids people are probably and flying cryptids they're probably even less likely to come out and admit to go to the police and make drawings or whatever
3: yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's very frustrating as an investigator, uh, Art, because I, you know, coming from more of a scientific, uh, methodology or, or background, um, you know, one of the things you look for is discernible patterns. Yes, of course. And the fly, flying humanoid phenomenon is so amorphous and ambiguous in nature. You have all of these different descriptions and different locations and, um, mysterious motives. Uh But, you know, the one thing I can say for sure is that many, many people have encountered or, or seen these creatures. I've interviewed many credible people with no reason to lie or make this up. Uh These have been very traumatic, life-changing experiences. Um You know, going back to, to John Keel for a second, of sure. the Mothman prophecies, I know, I know I've mentioned him a few times here now, but he really does, you know, he really was kind of the father of this whole, you know, flying humanoid movement. And, you know, he had a belief, Kiel did, that um, all the things that you mentioned, the UFOs, uh, demonic activity and ghosts, and even many of the cryptids, that those were all essentially manifestations of the same phenomenon. And he referred to it as the cosmic trickster. Uh, sometimes he referred to it as the goblin universe. And essentially what Kiel felt was that there was what he called an ultra-terrestrial intelligence uh Something well beyond our realm of understanding that would essentially manifest in all of these different forms uh that we refer to as unexplained phenomenon for reasons that are probably far beyond our comprehension um but certainly something that has to be contemplated um you know that there could be a force out there that is essentially toying with us in that manner
0: okay well, you mentioned that um he was harassed by m i b s right men in black and you too i would think i mean writing about this and investigating it the way you are frankly ken i would think that uh, you might have had an experience or two with people coming to see what you're all about i mean look what you're writing about so anything happen to you Um, probably the strangest thing that's
3: happened to me, Art, was when I was actually traveling to Point Pleasant to film a uh, television show, a a documentary on the Mothman one time. I was sitting next to a gentleman on the airplane who looked like just kind of a young, clean cut, all American kind of guy. And, um, the conversation, he he kind of struck up a conversation with me and, and began asking me, you know, where I was headed. And I said, Point Pleasant. And he, uh, He essentially uh, stated that that's where he was from, and um, began asking me about the Mothman. And he seemed to just have a real kind of unusual interest in, you know, my motivation and why I was going to investigate the Mothman. Mm -hmm. And made made every attempt and effort to kind of debunk it in different ways, you know, to kind of I guess take the wind out of my sails, so to speak, which I thought was really strange uh, coming from this particular individual who you know it was just very out of context it wasn't really intimidating uh but it was kind of a subversive way to uh you know
0: distract me from my mission so to
3: speak i felt wow. very uncomfortable i have to admit
0: um yes well as i mentioned earlier when you've seen something like this whether it's a cryptid flying or not um and it's it seems not human or semi-human and or you've seen something in our skies that doesn't belong there and is completely inexplicable by any physics that we understand then you have to imagine one of two things either you know they really are here and or they have shared something with our government i mean what i saw either was lighter than air which i don't believe for a second or was operating on some sort of anti-gravity uh... system of some kind Hold on. Hey, listen, everybody. Our public number, if you want to join in on this uh, cryptid, flying cryptid conversation, our national number is now open at area code 952-225-5278. That's area code 952-CALL-ART. Or, of course, on Skype. Feel free to join us. This is a good one. And especially, I should say, if you've seen something like this... Have you? Don't be afraid to pick up that phone. I'm Art Bell, and this is Midnight in the Desert.
2: in the desert to call the show if you're east of midnight call 1952 call art if you're west of midnight call 1952 225 5278 that's kind of
0: the uh, mini talk let me give you the real thing again our national number uh, if you'd like to join in the conversation is area code 952 225 5278 or easier to remember 952 call art then there are other ways. And I see no reason not to open these other lines. So, if you're a first-time caller to the program, sure, come on ahead. Area code 775-285-5800. That's 775-285-5800. And of course, we've got the Roswell connection, which is area code 575-208-77 Are you writing this down? 575, the area code, 208-7787. Naturally, on Skype as well. In North America, MITD51. Outside the country, it's MITD55. Now, countries, I should say. If you're not in uh, North America, if you're, you know, out there somewhere, uh, MITD55 is a free call from anywhere in the world. It will connect you with, uh, with Ken. And, uh, he is a cryptozoologist. We don't get them on here frequently, so if you have a, you know, connection, uh, with something in your past or know something about flying, I don't want to say flying humans, but, uh, cryptids, uh, anywhere in that area, please Feel free uh, to join us, and uh, let's bring uh, Ken back again. You're back on the air again. Um, I don't know if Keith has yet found that photograph. I really, really, really would like you to see it. Uh, he might not have even been listening, for all I know, sometimes. I think Keith sits there and, and sort of half list, listens to my show. Um, so let's take a look-see real quick. I'm going to fish around for that picture. Uh, It's the darndest thing, but it had to do definitely with 9-11. And, you know, it it was when you said uh, Harbingers uh, that it caught my attention. Well, I don't see it yet. Uh, Let me click on your stuff, and I've got a ton of calls for you here, Ken. It's awesome. Oh, it is awesome. Uh, No, I don't – oh, 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 oh. We've got it. We've got it. We've got it. Um, It's not a Zoom in – picture before we had a zoom in picture and you could see the size of this damn thing if you look at your own uh go down below your own pictures the ones you uh provided or the drawings uh just below that you will actually see this creature the zoomed in one is just spectacular but this is some kind of gigantic something i'm i'm telling you are you are you on my site yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, um, look at the size of that damn thing compared mm. to, I mean, it's way over on the other side of the building, for goodness sake.
4: That yeah, thing's that thing monstrous. Yeah, that
3: huge. Yeah, um, it's huge. You, you, you know what, this, this, this all potentially reminds me of art. Um, one thing that I've investigated besides the flying humanoid forms are the quote-unquote thunderbirds and uh thunderbirds are cryptids they are uh, the name thunderbird is derived from different native american traditions of these enormous bird-like creatures very different from the flying humanoids because they do appear to be either enormous birds with wing uh spans that are comparable to small airplanes or some people have described yeah. them as actually looking very prehistoric uh, like the you know pterosaurs, the pterodactyls. Yep. The, I, I wish uh, we had the zoomed in picture
0: of reptiles. Because if, if we had the zoomed in picture, you would look at that and you would say, "I promise you, prehistoric." Uh, and again, yep. it was connected uh, with 9/11. All right, we've got a lot of people who want to talk to you. I, I don't want to take up a lot of time, but I did want to point that out uh, when when you said that they frequently are around wars and disasters and all that sort of thing. Uh, so very quickly, uh, let's go first to Skype and say hi. You're on with Ken. Uh, good evening. Good evening.
5: Yeah, I'd just like to give a quick shout out to, to the people I'm listening to with over on Slash X. And uh, Slash I know, X. Indeed. Uh, you'd rather it, it's better you didn't. Uh, I have a comment and a question for your guest. Yeah. Uh, comment first in regards to why it seems to be a lot of flying creature sightings or a lot of these sort of cryptozoological sightings in general in South America and Mexico is probably because you see, uh, if you look at it anthropologically, uh, a lot of these places were sort of, dare I say, paganistic Catholics. Like if you look over in the Philippines, uh, they were colonized by, by the Spanish True. And, uh, if you look in Mexico and, and, uh, Brazil, et cetera, et cetera, they were all colonized by Portuguese and Spaniards, and they were very lenient in, uh, their sort of conversion, uh, with the culture. And I think that's why we see a lot more of these sort of mythical creature sightings, because they sort of have that, uh, paganistic, uh, essence to their Catholicism. Uh, and I wanted to know, uh, what your guests thought of, uh, thought about that.
0: Really good question. Uh, why would you promote something that it's better I don't know about? <laughs>
3: <laughs> wow, that, that uh, that's a very fascinating take. And, uh, you know, I've, I I guess I've kind of um, I've dealt with that quite a bit because I've done a lot of research down in Mexico. And the way I always explain it to people is that, you know, Mexico is a very traditional culture, and uh, a lot of that, you know, when you have uh traditional spirituality, a lot of times that does go hand in hand with sort of paganistic mm-hmm. um and almost superstitious belief systems mm-hmm. um so it's just a it's, it's it's a matter of interpretation and so you know uh you're definitely onto something there from a cultural aspect um but you know you you're working on the premise that you know people are essentially um uh I don't want to say creating or fabricating because that, you know, I don't mean to insult you, but, um, you know, people are, you know, from my experience and my research, they are. These are real experiences. Um, So, you know, if if you're saying it's a matter of perception or perspective, then I accept that. Um, But it certainly does not, still does not explain the fact that, you know, many people are, sighting and encountering these strange creatures, and there there really is no scientific explanation for that.
5: I just have one more quick question uh, It's also in relation to South America and stuff In the last couple of years There have been uh, a lot of sightings coming online uh, About gnomes Or goblins, some people would call them But specifically like very small sized uh, Humanoid individuals And uh, I'll take uh, the answer to that Off the air mm, But no, I was just no, wondering if you heard minute. anything hold, about those Thanks a lot Art, have a good one oh, yeah.
0: See he just he ran away uh anyway, small goblins and stuff and gnomes. You want to comment gnome on that? Like,
3: yeah, gnome like creatures. You know, we just um the the T V series that I'm I'm currently co hosting called Missing in Alaska, we actually did an episode. There are these strange little gnome like creatures that are greatly feared by many of the uh native Alaskan people, the Inuits and so forth, and mm-hmm. they have a variety of different names. Names they're known as the Inksjihak or the Jinxiak, the Anukins, right. but essentially they are characterized. They're very, it's very similar to the fairy lore of Europe, but they are literally terrified of these little goblin-like creatures that are said to be two to three feet tall, uh, and they're you know they're borderline malevolent, uh, kind of tricksters and mischievous, but uh, on the, you know on the same token greatly feared by by many of the Inuit people. Um, so you know it's it's just. As with many things within the field of cryptozoology, it's just fascinating. You have all of these disparate worldwide traditions and cultures of little gnome-like creatures, and uh, you know they're often portrayed as you know kind of sinister tricksters.
0: Nothing like the travel
3: gnome. No, not at all. It's <laughs> completely different. <laughs> all right. Okay.
0: Uh, first first time caller line. You're on the air with Ken. Hi. Hello. First-time caller line, this is your big chance. Going once, going twice, gone. Uh, Hi. Winter Haven, Florida, you are on the air.
6: Hey, Art. How are you tonight?
0: Very well, thank you.
6: Hey, uh, I just wanted to ask Ken what he thought about, I heard this uh, theory about uh, certain UFOs, like possibly not all, but uh, you have people, the things that they're seeing in the sky as being
7: possible A biological organism that uh, actually lives in the atmosphere. And people are, because some of these UFOs are actually seen to morph into different shapes, almost like placebo like creatures. Yeah, I think it's a
0: fair question, actually. Uh, Things that that live in our atmosphere, um, and perhaps at very high altitudes, so we don't even notice them. I mean, heck, the jet is up at uh, cruising altitude, you barely even notice it when it goes over, so um, how how about it, Ken? Uh,
3: scientifically viable, I would say. Uh, I know in recent years there have been a number of studies done with uh, you know high elevation balloons and things where they have actually detected... You know, life forms, the, you know, there is life on, you know, the very fringe of our atmosphere in the upper stratosphere and so forth. Uh, now obviously microscopic is, you know, everything that's been found has been kind of on a microscopic level. Uh, but it, it you know, it, it, nothing else, it illustrates, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, life finds a way and you, you couldn't, you can potentially have life forms uh, in places where you wouldn't expect it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, in terms of the, the, you know, kind of living UFOs or organic UFOs, Um, there have been a number of accounts recently that I'm aware of of these kind of manta ray-shaped creatures that are seen flying through the air. Very distinct and different from Mothman. These are not humanoids, uh, but essentially they look like, you know, again, stingrays or manta rays that you would expect to see in the ocean, but people have reported seeing these things flying over the air in uh, places like Maryland, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Florida, and so forth. And nobody knows exactly what these things are. Right. Let me add so. something
0: here. I'm a drone owner. I own a drone. Pretty good size. Uh, and let me tell you, my friend, uh, by the time that thing gets 150, 200 feet into the air on a clear day, mm-hmm. it's gone from sight. You wouldn't even know it's there. In fact, you can't even hear it. The sounds gone. It's gone. It's just gone. So there could be things in our atmosphere at uh, certain altitudes, and we would never in a million years know it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm there. you know, And uh,
3: I- I'm hopeful that one of your callers will also talk about the vast and deep oceans of the world, because I think that's where you have the real hope for new discoveries of all kinds of fascinating and strange life forms. I mean, we know... You know, literally nothing. I think five percent of the of the Earth's deep oceans have been explored at this point. I agree. Uh, There could there could literally be anything down there.
0: Uh, One more quick thing that I want to touch on because a number of people pre interview asked me about this. You're doing something on missing people in Alaska, right? Correct.
3: Uh, I'm hosting a show called Missing in Alaska. Co-hosting a show called Missing in Alaska. Uh, it's on the History Channel, and it's actually a two-pronged investigation. Our, we, are, we are, in fact, investigating actual cases of missing persons, and Alaska, uh, strangely enough, has a higher percentage of missing persons per capita. I believe it's like uh, four out of every 1,000 people are reported missing in the state of Alaska. And while there are obvious reasons why that might take place, uh, hypothermia, uh, bear attacks, things like, you know, of that nature, getting lost in the wilderness and so forth. Uh, for that particular show, we are exploring a lot of sort of, uh, unexplained phenomenon, uh, and legendary type creatures and things that could potentially have connections or affinities to some of these missing persons cases as well. Uh, so we do an episode on Bigfoot, many reports of Bigfoot in Alaska, uh, lots of UFO activity up there. Uh, there have been cases, Art. Right, I'm sure you're familiar with case, some of the cases of these missing aircraft up there. I mean, uh, there have been airplanes that have vanished up in Alaska that, you know, they've mounted incredibly extensive searches, and you know, still have never found any sign or trace of these these aircraft. Some of the military craft with 46 people on board. You know, that's just one example.
0: Can I? Uh, um, I worked for KENI in Anchorage for three years, so I I know Alaska. Okay. Um have a lot Probably of friends still much up. Much better than I. <laughs> Not much better, but, um, but pretty well. Uh, what I remember about Alaska, to be honest with you, is that when winter sets in, uh, the cold, the real cold comes, and the snow comes. Um, Alaska, Anchorage in particular, and I'm sure Fairbanks as well, turns into a gigantic party town. You've never seen anything like it in your life. So I can imagine that people who party it up really well and then wander off somewhere... Into thirty below zero can probably disappear quite readily let's uh let's go back to Skype and Paul. hi, you're on the air with Ken.
8: Hello art. how are you
0: i'm I'm very well, thank you.
8: Well, uh, I wanted to ask you and Ken uh, actually I want to give you just a tiny bit of background here in Kentucky we have a lot of folk legends. Uh, my father was born here in 1903, he grew up in the military, he was in the 82nd Mounted Cavalry okay. he was a weapons expert he was home, out of the military, 1927 due to cutbacks, was hunting up in a gorge around Mammoth Cave Cob Run, close to where I'm at right now and he saw a bird-like animal in the top of a snag of uh, he said approximately 100 yards away. This guy was an expert shot, however, 22-caliber weapon, and it terrified him.
0: Wait, well, uh, so, again, he had a twenty two with him? Is that what you said?
8: Yes. He, he was going squirrel hunting, got and it, got he it. only had a single-shot twenty two. Right. He didn't have a hard rifle, and right. he told me this story. From the time I was a kid on going out into the woods, I, I'd go out walking with me in with him. And it bothered him so bad if a hawk or an eagle circled overhead, it would it would trouble him. He said, you know, I really hate that because he thought this thing was going to carry him off. He felt like it had that kind of power, and he described it as having bat-like wings folded around it and approximately the height of a man. He had twenty fifteen vision. The other thing I wanted to tell you is I was in Point Pleasant uh the very first of the year nineteen seventy because they had a another flare up of the Mothman type uh
0: sighting. Yeah, it's interesting. They seem to come in uh in, in groups, don't they? Well, yeah,
8: that, yes, that's a they, they do. Be a pattern. Mm-hmm. But Ken, you know, with so many sightings like this, you must have some insight into are are these transdimensional, or, <laughs> or are they some some prehistoric carryover we just haven't cornered? It's a big Earth.
0: It is, um, Ken. It's a fair question. Uh, I know you can't really answer it, but do you do you have any clues?
3: Well, I think the you know. When addressing the, the the problem of of flying cryptids, I think we're dealing with a lot of different things here, and I think that that kind of muddies the water, so to speak. In the case of the flying humanoids, things like Mothman, Owlman, and so forth, I think you would absolutely have to say that we're dealing with something supernatural or spectral in nature. Mm. Um, you know, they don't they don't resemble anything in the fossil history. Um, they seem to vanish as quickly as they appear, in, in sort of a supernatural. Uh, fashion, uh, but on the other hand, you have these again these thunderbird type creatures, you know, which is kind of what you're telling talking about there. This giant prehistoric bird-like creature right. that uh, could very well be some type of surviving pterosaur or pteratorn or something from our prehistoric past. Um, so I think there's a there's a bit of a, a confusion there because people tend to lump all of the flying cryptids together and associate them uh, when in fact we may be looking at something that is cryptozoologically viable in terms of a surviving prehistoric a giant bird or flying reptile and then you also have these reports of these spectral Mothman type flying humanoids and uh, you know I think people tend to lump all of that stuff together just because they're they're big scary flying things
0: okay well do me a favor ken um it'll probably be after the program but download or copy the picture on my site right Mm -hmm. the one i've got up there that i talked about and uh use any program you've got and go in and amplify as as far as you can go without it Pixelating, you know, get as close as you can, and boy, this thing—I'm telling you—it looks so prehistoric. Stay right where you are. We're at a break. We'll be right back. It's a short break. This is Midnight in the Desert, and I am Arthur Bell.
8: You partake of that last offered cup Or disappear into
2: the potter's ground uh, When the man comes around Midnight in the Desert doesn't scream calls We trust you, but remember the NSA Well, you know, to call the show, please dial 1-952-225-5278 That's one 1-952. call art <laughs> That's funny, um, that
0: slash X guy, he didn't have to hide himself. He's, uh, so now I know, he's a 4chan guy. You could have said that. Jeez, dude, we all know that those people at 4chan are hairy and cryptid-like and interested in this sort of topic, so next time feel free to promo away. I not problem with that. I let everybody promo their groups on here. Um, okay, back now to, uh, to our guest. Ken, you're back on.
1: And, yes, uh, so we need to be back. Right now, uh-oh. And, uh oh. So Ken? Callers. Callers. Ken,
0: callers. Ken, callers. Ken. Ken. Something has happened to our audio. I'm not sure what. Um, Quick question for you. Is that a uh, USB setup? Yes correct. Yes, correct. yes, correct. Okay. What I want you to do, Ken, is to unplug the USB from your computer, from the USB connection, right now, unplug it. And then uh, plug it back in, and we're going to see if that clears up what's going on. That sounds like a typical USB mess-up. So are you back? I'm back. Can you hear me? See, it's like saying a prayer, and it comes true. I hear you just fine. So uh, Awesome. It, yeah. If you're ready, here we go. Let's go to uh, El Paso, Texas. You're on the air.
7: Hello, looking?
0: Hi.
9: I wanted to share a, a quick story that I, I'm i going to start on an experience I had with one of these um, creatures.
0: Okay. By all means. It happened um, approximately
9: seven years ago. Um, I was in my backyard with a group of friends, and uh, my friend noticed at first off in the distance uh, in the sky, um, but very far away toward, we could, we could barely see it. It appeared to be a, a human shape, but with something on its back, almost like like a like a box type thing mm-hmm. and it was just like floating up in the air and like um tumbling in the air and then we couldn't really tell what it was
3: okay hmm where, where did this uh where did this take place uh here in El
7: Paso Texas
3: oh wow okay so you're uh you're a neighbor <laughs> well, if you consider uh, 600 miles <laughs> neighborly, but uh, you're just west of me there, a little given uh, You know, that's interesting. Texas does seem to have uh, right after Mexico, and I guess I, I consider Texas a bit of an extension of Mexico in terms of uh, geography. That we we have a lot of weird flying things that are reported here in Texas as well. Mm-hmm.
10: We're we're actually on the border
9: with Mexico. Maybe that's why.
0: That's right. El Paso is right on the border. Across the river. So you you yeah. you've seen it, huh?
9: Yeah,
10: I and mean, it definitely wasn't a plane or anything like that. I mean, you could see a human type shape.
3: You should definitely go uh, go online and look up some of the videos of the. Again, it's U F H unidentified flying humanoids. And there are some uh, Mexican UFO researchers that have basically posted a lot of these videos of these strange, sounds very similar to what you're describing, a man-like form uh, kind of just hovering around up in the air. Wow. Okay. I'll look into it.
0: All right, caller, thank you. Uh, very interesting. You see, people have seen these things. This is not an area that I'm very familiar with, um, Ken. I mean, I've heard of all of these things, but I've never seen one. Uh, so I guess I'm sort of at a disadvantage, but man, it's really cool and very interesting. And obviously, there's something to it. People have seen it. First-time caller line, you are on the air with Ken. Hi.
11: Hi, this is JD in Tulsa. I want to say hello on behalf of my fellow Midnight Riders.
0: Midnight Riders. Okay. I I encourage people to promote even 4chan.
10: My wife is from Peru and she's told me about flying humanoids before. And like you said earlier, they have no wings. Have you heard anything about them? And then I was also gonna ask, what about shapeshifters? Uh I'm full blood Native American, so we have a lot of beliefs like that. I don't know if you've done any study on shapeshifters and possibly art. That would be a a good guest, you know, maybe some tribal police because they are supposed to investigate those uh claims in the shapeshifter. Where,
0: where is your wife from again, please? Peru. Peru, okay. Yes. Interesting. Um and and the question of shapeshifters, also very interesting, uh, Ken.
3: Yeah, shapeshifters very, very scary, uh, in terms of, you know, uh different interpretations of shape shifting type creatures. Uh the Oswang that, you know, we kinda started off at the beginning of the show, bit of a shapeshifter. Um in Alaska, there is a creature known as the kushtaka, the otter man, land otter man, greatly feared. We did an episode on that, and people were very, very terrified. Uh, the native people were very terrified of that. And then, of course, the Navajo traditions in the United States of the skinwalkers, yes, um, essentially uh, shape-shifting type beings. Now, in South America, I have a contact who has been sending me accounts and sightings of something known as the lobazon, and the Lobazon is essentially a South American werewolf, a shapeshifter. Uh, and uh, there are accounts of these creatures actually transforming, uh, you know, from the shape of a human into a kind of a monstrous wolf-like type of creature. So, uh, you know, again, just like with the gnomes, you have all of these global disparate legends or myths uh, of these Shape-shifting creatures. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you said at the top, Art, uh, myths don't come from nothing. There is some grain or shred of truth behind all of these myths and origins.
0: Um, Somebody asked me to repeat the name uh, of the one in the Philippines. It's Aswang, A-S-W-A-N-G, and I would recommend you go to Google. If you want an experience, go to Google, put in A-S-W-A-N-G, go to um, uh, pictures or images, and there are literally hundreds it's pretty frightening stuff and that is unique uh as far as i know to the philippines and boy does my wife believe in that i mean you could get in a big fight trying to say they don't exist uh jason you're on the air with ken hi
6: hi art hi ken hi jason uh first off i want to say thank you for touching on the otter man subject i've been following that for a very long time and you're the first people I've heard actually talk about it, so I like that a lot.
0: The Otter Man.
6: Yeah. Uh, um, my question was, you're aware of the genetic similarities that exists between... Uh,
0: We've got a not very good connection, sir. Can you get good and close to your mic? I don't know if you're breaking up or just a bad mic. Is that any better? Uh, way better, sir. Way better.
6: Okay. Um. Are you aware of the genetic similarities that Homo sapiens shares with, say, gorillas and other primates, correct? Yes. Now, my question is, do you think as far as the Sasquatch, Yeti, or whatever you want to call it goes, there's evidence that we crossbred with Neanderthals and some of their DNA remains in our current structure. Do you think it would be possible for us to crossbreed with, say, a Sasquatch and perhaps some advanced, more powerful hybrid could come of it?
0: You first, sir. Well,
3: there's wild speculation. You know, this is basically all wild speculation, but, you know, we would have to know how genetically close humans and Sasquatches are. Now, if they are Neanderthals, which some people have theorized, uh or Denisovans or some of these you know, uh, fairly recent sub-branches of Homo, uh, the genus Homo, then yes, I guess theoretically it's possible. But if you're talking about something that comes from a lineage, say, hundreds of thousands of years ago, like Gigantopithecus or Homo right. erectus or something like that, then the chances are that there has been so much time has passed since we genetically split at that point that we would not be able to successfully hybridize.
6: But don't you think that given the time that people have been claiming they see Sasquatch and stuff, they've basically been on the same speed of biological evolution that we have, so we can assume that we're at least close enough? I mean, I'm not saying that, like, with other species, like if we were to try to mate with Otter Man, that would work. But with, with <laughs> right
1: again, <us>, you know, <laughs>
3: To I get your point. You, know, you, have the, you have the story of St- Stalin's ape men. You know, of course, uh, you know there were these diabolical experiments that some of Stalin's scientists were trying to uh, crossbreed humans and different great apes. It, it, again, it's a question of, of and I'm, I don't pretend to be an expert in genetics, but it's a question of the, the time period that we split. Case in point, dogs and wolves or dogs and coyotes can can uh, crossbreed fairly successfully because they only split about 15,000 years ago. That's just a drop of water in the bucket. But dogs and uh, other caniforms like bears, for example, split about 15 million years ago. And so that divergence was so long ago and they are so have become so genetically diverse and different that there's no way that those types of animals can interbreed. Okay. So you know, again, it's a question of how long ago whatever Sasquatch or Bigfoot is, you know, how how close how closely related are we to it? Is it more of like a Neanderthal type of creature, or are we talking about something that split off from, from the, the human lineage, you know,
0: hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago? Okay. Well, that, that brings another question in mind. Caller, hold on one second. I'll bring you back. Um, I know that they found uh, hair. I know that Mm -hmm. they found other, you know, leavens from Bigfoot. Have they ever done a DNA analysis? Well, there are controversial
3: uh, claims of DNA analysis that have been out there now for a few years. Uh, A geneticist from Texas claims that she's actually collected Sasquatch DNA from, I believe, three different sources and that she has... Uh, map that uh, DNA and that it, it indicates uh, similar to what this gentleman is inferring. I think some type of hybrid uh, between a human and some type of archaic hominid. Okay. Um, but uh, DNA is obviously it's a comparative science. So uh, you know if you don't have a uh, a source type of a Sasquatch DNA then you have no basis for comparison. So if someone produces DNA and says it's from a Sasquatch, there's no archetype uh, sure. that sure. you refer to. Okay. So it's you know, it, it's a bit of a, a, a circular type of I get it. All uh, right. problem, I
0: guess. Anything else, caller?
6: Uh, no, that actually sheds a lot of light on my question. <laughs> um, thanks for listening, and praise be to our otter overlords. Thank you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, take care. Um, he's an otter overlords, right?
6: Yeah,
3: the, the, I'm not familiar, but uh, you know the Otterman reference. That was
0: nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go. I don't know back to the phone, uh, and I'm not sure where, but you're on the air with Ken. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Hi.
7: Hello. Hello. Hi, am I on? Can you hear me?
0: Uh, yes, okay. I can hear you.
7: Oh, okay, my bad about that. Um, yeah. Our, uh, well, I had a, I had a, um, a question for Ken. Uh, I wanted to ask him, like, has any time during his research or his investigation, like, has he ever been threatened or harassed by, like, men in black or people of the government?
0: Mm, no, not personally. We did have him describe a little bit earlier a kind of a strange encounter. Was it on an airplane, right, Ken?
3: Yeah, I was, uh, subversively intimidated by a, by a, strange person on an airplane on the way to a, a mothman investigation once but no i've never had anyone show up on my doorstep or or follow me at least not that i'm aware of <laughs> all right well oh, then
0: God. let's keep moving jeff uh you're on the air with ken yeah. hi
4: yeah hey art this fascinating show tonight so i had an experience with uh one of these flying humanoids once and it was a pretty shocking experience i was uh standing outside by my pool and I had a light on the inside just just enough light to basically see out there and uh all of a sudden, just out of nowhere this uh flying sort of like a chupacabra thing flew down uh, i I saw it as clear as clear as day really it's and and the crazy thing was it's it had sort of red eyes it was it was oh. and it was staring right at me and uh a friend of mine was out there and he made a he made a big yell as well, and uh, and now is where I have to debunk myself because I kid you not, if there wouldn't have been someone else out there, I'd be telling you I'd put my hand on the Bible and say this thing was had a wingspan of ten fifteen feet. In reality, what it was, it was a bat, and this bat flew right in front of my face about three feet out and just hovered there. But because of the perception and the light and everything, I would have sworn the thing was 10 feet tall. So, you know, I just wanted to share that for my story, I wish it was real, but it's a debunked thing that, thank God, he was out there. and Nevertheless, it was still pretty scary.
0: I've never seen a bat hover.
4: Yeah, it was right in front of me.
0: I, I get it. I, I heard what you said, but I've never heard of a bat hovering. We have bats out here. You know, every night uh, at about uh, a sundown or somewhere near sundown, they start flying around, you know, they're looking for bugs. And I guarantee you, I've seen them make a lot of strange moves, but none of them ever included a hover. Uh Do you know anything about that, Ken? Well, I, um, I'm curious, how big did the bat
3: ultimately appear to be once it was right in front of your face? Right,
0: he's not that big. Uh But, okay. you, you know, by perception, when it's that close, obviously it seems... Big, so he sort of debunked his own story by saying, "No, look, it was virtually right in front of my face." But I've n- I've never seen a bat hover. No, I, I don't think so. Uh, bats typically
3: they have a very fast, rapid movement of their wings. That's kind of the the design that. Uh... But you know, uh, going back to the bat theory or suggestion, now you
0: do have some pretty darn big bats uh, over in the old. Um, hold, hold on one second here. I am so sorry, Jaffe. I'm answering the phone in in a wrong way here. It's my fault, and uh, and I apologize. Okay, so you're back on the air now. Uh, the new
3: world, all of the bats are 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 microchiro, the suborder microchiroptera, which means they're very, they're typically all very very tiny. Even the largest bat in uh, the Americas, right. which I believe is the false vampire bat, is only you know less than a foot across in terms of wingspan.
0: So okay.
3: Uh, the All right, suggestion I think we, that Mothman might be a giant bat doesn't really no, no. hold any water. That's, right. I guess that's Jaffe, I make.
0: think, uh, from somewhere outside the country.
11: South Korea, once again. Ours, South uh, Korea. Our second time I've managed to get through to you, so thank you for taking my call. I sure. much appreciate it. Sure. Um, so, yeah, this is interesting because I actually was going to call in just with a quick little story, but uh, one of your last callers was brought up the whole issue of crossbreeding, and Sasquatch in particular, and immediately a light off went, my, went off in my head, and I realized, uh, uh, I remembered a story from, um when I was a kid, and you can actually find this online too. I mean, Ken, you might have heard of this yourself. It was British Columbia, back around the, uh, the turn of the last century. That's, I, that's the, the the start of the 20th century, basically, this Catholic nun was taking, leading a, uh, a, a number of uh, schoolgirls through the bush from, I guess it was their school to some other place uh, uh, off, off in the distance, maybe a day trip or what have you, and suddenly, apparently from just out of nowhere, out of the bush, there, there, just, there was this huge uh, hairy beast uh, appeared and uh, jumped out, grabbed one of the little girls and ran off and uh, disappeared, and she was gone. Lo and behold, what happened was the next year, i guess it was or maybe it was a year or two this the girl showed up back uh, uh again in the in a similar location in a, a basic uh area and uh and what did she have? She had a little baby with her, and it was as it was apparently according to the story, it was half ape half half uh human so um like I said that wasn't the story that wasn't what I was calling in originally, but uh uh, we can just go for that uh, with that for now, if you like. There was another quick one I could uh, had, but uh, w- regarding the cryptids and uh, and uh, uh, flying, what what is it? Angels or no, not angels. Uh, cryptids or uh, what are the uh, the big? The, what happened is I had a girlfriend who, well, what are they, what are those beasts called? The ones with the large wings? The uh, bad girls? Do you know the name?
0: I'm just fooling with you. I I, I, I don't know. Uh,
11: they're yep, not the flying humanoids. No, 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 no. The really big ones. The the, the Thunderbirds. The Thunderbirds.
0: Thunderbirds.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
11: Universe. I had a girlfriend yeah. uh and she basically she careened off the road she was driving along in the van she had a couple of, ki- of her kids with her and she was uh just lost control uh on one of these roads in uh up a uh, central interior british columbia. she was going over a large embankment it was it was a it was a like a a cliff or, you know really serious situation from out of nowhere just and this is the story she told me this is her own personal experience uh she's a pretty straight shooter too so Uh, these, these giant wings appeared from out of nowhere, just as she was going over this, this steep embankment slash cliff with her kids. And it these, these giant wings, uh, just, uh, covered the van from the front and, and stopped her right as she was, uh, you know, heading off into, you know, to, to face her, her doom and, uh. Uh, you know, just uh, things would not have worked out too well for her and her family, obviously. So, have you ever heard anything like that along those lines, with like a thunderbird uh, slash angel slash God only knows what, you know, appearing out of nowhere and saving people, not just being a, a you know a malevolent sort of uh, entity or force, but something that was uh, helpful. Okay. Well, there's
3: actually there's only one account in my book that refers to kind of a, a helpful flying humanoid, if you will, uh, uh, benevolent. Uh, there's a story from Ecuador years ago. It uh, was documented by uh, uh, author Robert Traylen's of these two young kids that were playing up on a mountainside in Ecuador and began to slip and fall off the mountain. And as they were kind of hanging on the edge of this cliff, according to them, this angel-like figure, this winged humanoid, a uh, figure flew down from the sky and actually grasped, you know, sort of grasped them up uh from certain doom and rescued them. And uh when they got back to their village, that's the story they told that they were rescued by this this winged figure who subsequently became known as the uh the Angel of Ecuador. Wow. So that's really the only account I can think of in my book um, as far as, I, just real quick, as far as the, uh, the first story you mentioned about the, uh, the girl getting kidnapped by a Sasquatch, uh, there are different legends around the world. For example, in, uh, Central America, there's something known as the Sisamite, which is, uh, the Central American version of Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. And one of the beliefs that pertain to the Sisamite is that they will actually abduct young women in an attempt to take them as brides. Um, Not that dissimilar from the old legends of the mountain gorillas. Before the mountain gorilla was uh, discovered and and scientifically described, uh, it was portrayed as this kind of uh, a veritable King Kong, you know, this monster ape that would abduct young women and uh, take them hostage. So it's interesting you have those different legends around the world.
0: Okay. Back to the phones. And uh, I think up in Alaska. Hello. Hi. Hi.
12: Hi.
0: Wow, you're on the air, yes.
12: Hey, Art, this is Ryan in Anchorage, Alaska. Hey, Ryan. Hey, I've been trying to call you since 1995.
0: That's a lot of dialing.
12: That's a lot of dialing. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to call in because I live in Alaska, and I've heard about a lot of the critters that your guest has been talking about, and I've actually had an encounter oh. with a shapeshifter up here.
8: With a shapeshifter, Out. Wow. Okay. Yes. Proceed.
12: Uh, My dad and I were hunting in one area that we didn't like to frequent much because my dad had a bad experience back in the 70s that he didn't like to talk about. Short version something hunted him. He never saw what it was, but it hunted him. But we were back in this area by the time I'd been born. I was about 13, 14, and we were back in there a ways, and we'd been hunting all day, so we stopped for a potty break. So my dad went behind one tree, and uh, being a girl, I went for the bush, (laughs) and I'm sitting there with a 30-30, and I saw my dad walk around in front of me and go up onto the ridge we were hunting on. So I'm like, oh, well, he's done. So I finished up and climbed up out of the bush and was up behind him. So we're hiking back in, and I'm following him, and my dad was one of those people who always had to look behind him to see who was behind him, if he knew. Well, I'm following him, and I'm following him, or I think I'm following him, and He's not turning back and looking at me, and, like, about quarter mile, half mile of hiking behind him, I'm like, something just set off my spider senses, and I'm like, this isn't my dad. Really? Yeah. I had hunted with the man since I was eight, so six years, seven years out in the woods with him, I knew my dad pretty well. Sure. And so I just stopped, and I'm like, hey, turn around. And he didn't stop and turn around. Like, even if he had been screwing with me, he would turn around. Whatever this was didn't stop. It kept walking and it walked around a spruce tree in front of me and disappeared. And I'm standing there and I cocked the gun because I'm like, I'm walking behind this person. I can hear their footsteps. I can see the light hitting their body and they just step around a tree and disappear. So I'm standing there and, and I've told this to my husband. I'm not a person that believes things unless I see them. I mean, I've been in the woods most of my life. I'm sitting there looking dead on at where this Person disappeared, and something comes running at me. I can hear it, okay. but I can't see it. But it's like Predator. I could see the light being displaced by it. Mm. So it's running at me, and I opened fire, and that's how my dad found where I was at because he heard the gunshot. So I opened fire, but I don't know what I, if I hit it. I had been trained never to shoot at something unless you saw what you're shooting at. That's sure. Gun Safety 101. Nothing dropped, and it didn't seem like I hit anything, but my dad comes running up onto the ridge. And he's like, you know, we get into an argument because he thinks I'm just, you know, shooting bleep. And I'm like, I'm not just shooting things. You know, I was following you. So we finally hash it out. I'm like, no, you walked in front of me up onto the ridge. I followed you because you were done using the bathroom. I've been hiking behind you for 20 minutes now. And someone or something walked around that tree in front of us and disappeared. And then something ran at me that I couldn't see. Well, my dad's decision was, let's get the heck out of here. So we noped out of here. We noped out of here. But that's when he told me that a few years back in the 70s when he was in the Air Force, he'd been hunting in that area and it was getting close to dark, and he always walked around armed. He carried a 45 hand cannon, and he had a rifle, and he always carried a hand cannon in his hand because that'll stop a bear. He'd been hunting in this area, and he kept hearing something behind him, so he thought it was a bear, circled back, circled back, never caught this bear. He was almost to his pickup truck, and whatever it was, was about 30 feet behind him And this is a clear trail back then So it hadn't grown up He's looking around, he can't see it So he pulled the 44 And right when it's about 10 feet from behind him He turns around, there is nothing there But the entire trip back to his truck He said it felt like something was just standing on his neck yeah. and he couldn't see it and I haven't gone back to that. I even told my husband, I've been hunting since I was eight. I'm not scared of bears. I'm not scared of lynx. I ain't scared of coyotes. Sure. You cannot pay me to go hunt back in this area.
3: Can? Okay. Wow, okay. yeah. Sure. We're very sure. indicative of the stories of the Kushtika. You know, the Kushtika is uh, from southeast Alaska. The Klingit people talk about its ability or, you know, its desire to lure you out into the wilderness. And uh, the, one of the ways that it does this is by assimilating or taking the form of someone that you know. So when you said that this thing looked like your father, but, it, you know, you could tell that it wasn't instinctively and that it was attempting to lead you into the wilderness, that sounds pretty much like the, the stories that I heard about the Kushtika.
0: That's what they do. Pretty, pretty creepy stuff pretty creepy indeed and in a, if it had been a twilight zone you know it would have clearly been a monster she would have opened fire uh, only she would have hit it and then of course when it's on the ground it would have morphed back into her father and it would have been horrible so yeah that's like a shape shifting story I guess Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to tell you young lady that's one heck of a story
12: well, it's real and thanks for taking my call, Art. I've been listening to you for almost twenty years now and I'm glad you're back.
0: Okay. Thank you very much and take care. Uh we've only thanks got uh, we have a very short time here to the bottom of the hour. Um on Skype, you're on the
13: air. Hello. Hello, on? You are. Well, I just wanted to say, Art, it is an awesome show tonight has got me with goosebumps (laughs) because I've actually seen uh, this type of humanoid things. I'm coming from South Texas and uh, our humanoids are Lechusas, I don't know if Kent's familiar with that. Absolutely. Uh,
3: Lechuza. I wrote about it in the book. It is a uh, Mm shapeshifter, a shapeshifting witch. uh, And, you know, essentially she takes the form of this bird-like creature um, yeah, uh, Lachita right. is very Both much of you tied up
0: in the lore of the flying humanoids. I'm sorry to interrupt. Both of you, hold on. We're at a break. Caller, I'll hold you over. This is uh, midnight in the desert. And, yeah, this is kind of creepy stuff, isn't it? Especially if something can assume one shape, particularly one you're familiar with, while you're holding a gun. Yeah, no thanks.
2: The desert to call the show. If you're east of midnight, call one nine five two. Call Art. If you're west of midnight, call one nine five two 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 five fifty two seventy eight.
0: Well, all right. Just before we go back to our caller, uh, Ken, are you there? Yes, I am. All right. If you would again refer to my website, please. Um, you remember where you saw the picture of the bird? Yes. That I was talking about. uh Now we've got a zoomed in version just above it. So if you could return to that location and take a look at this zoomed-in uh, version, I would appreciate that. Uh, this was not intended to be a picture of a bird, by the way. It was intended to be a picture of a building. Uh, they just happened to catch this bird, but my God. Um, let me know when you get there. Yep, yep. Uh, I'm looking at it. Um, Doesn't that look a little
3: prehistoric to you? It does. Uh, it looks enormous. I mean, when you look uh, the, the sheer distance, you know. Obviously, it's it's difficult sometimes to accurately gauge something in flight, but you have the scale or you have the perspective here of the buildings. You do next yes. next to it, and uh, you can tell how far down the street the photographer is from the object. So
0: oh yes, it, it looks pretty huge. <laughs> yeah, I would say pretty huge, pretty prehistoric. And you mentioned that they come around at dire times. Well, that was sure as
13: heck a dire time. Uh, caller, you're back on the air with Ken. Hi. Hello. Um, yeah, I was just, uh, uh asking Ken if he knew about the Lechusas, because for some reason, South Texas is like saturated with like bird, uh, like stories. Like, for instance, maybe like back in the 80s, there was that big bird, uh, story, and everyone and their mom had a, an incident with the big bird. Um, I wasn't, uh, born around the time, but, my folks would tell me that this thing was at least like 15 feet, uh, you know, big and, you know, huge wingspan and stuff like that. Sure. And I was just uh, wondering if uh, Ken might have an explanation for that because, I mean, for some reason, uh, one way or another, like, there's been so many sightings over here of, like, Lechusas. and you know, and uh, all these other big, great, giant birds. And I also had a question for Art. Are you familiar with the Mananangal from the Philippines?
0: I am not. Okay.
13: Well, I think it's, uh, I was wondering, since your wife is Filipino, there's a thing called a Mananangal. It's supposed to be some kind of vampire looking thing that looks like the Aswan. I was just wondering if you guys maybe could, you know, tell me the difference between that. (laughs)
0: Um the Osong is thoroughly enough for me um <laughs> it's, it's awful, but I, I you know I'll ask her if she's listening, so I'll ask when I get home uh, in the meantime uh Ken, if you have anything on that, chime in yeah i'm I'm afraid I don't have anything on that one, but um my first
3: book is actually about the Big Bird. It's called Big Bird, Modern Sightings of Flying Monsters, and it addresses the accounts of something known as the Big Bird, which was sighted in ni- starting in 1976. You were close, but they were li- it literally became worldwide news because there were so many sightings of this enormous flying creature. It was either a giant bird or a giant pterodactyl type of creature, and I, I still continue to get reports of the Big Bird. I've gotten some very recently from people around here in the San Antonio area. And as far as La Latusa, I have one quick, very quick, chilling story. I spoke to a family, uh, I interviewed a family from uh, a traditional part of Mexico who told me that there was this giant, ugly bird that was terrorizing their village, and uh, at one point somebody actually went out and shot this thing and killed it, and when they got to the location where this thing had gone down to the ground, it had actually taken on the form of a a woman who was suspected, a local woman who was suspected of being a witch. Uh-huh. So that that is one example of a, of a Lachusa story, that you have this witch who is essentially shape-shifting into the form of this hideous bird.
0: Wow. That's kind of what the Aswang in the Philippines does. Uh, they're thought to be originally some sort of humans and, and some sort of witch or some sort of, I I don't know, anyway... I, I don't know what I'm talking about, except as my wife has told me. First time caller line, you're on the air with, with Ken. Um, please go ahead.
7: Yeah, Art. Um, my name's Kelly. I'm from uh, north central Washington state, and have, i got a story for you guys. Okay. You know, I, I had a, a run-in. I've had a few encounters with some real Sasquatches, a whole family of them. As a matter of fact, uh, once my friend and I decided we were going to go plant ourselves smack dab in the middle of the Sasquatch country. So we went 45 miles to the end of the road, and then we hiked six miles up and in and around, and about 2,000 feet elevation gain. By the time we got there, it was totally dark. I shined my light ahead of him, and I saw these red eyes growing right in front of him. So I grabbed him by his back, <laughs> told, stop, don't go that way, and it was right on the edge of the clearcut right where we almost got to where we were supposed to camp. So we went around the other way a couple hundred yards and when we got to where we were going to set up camp in the middle of this clear cut because uh, uh, avalanche or snow sludge came through, and wiped everything out and right over there in that exact spot right where I had just grabbed him, all of a sudden we heard a 300 pound like boulder just go crush crashing through the brush and it was like a totally flat spot and that's that's when it started. Uh, they pretty much left us alone all night, but the next morning we started hearing the rock knockers up, up around us, up on the cliff, and then we started hearing what sounded like 300-pound giant woodpeckers, and I figured it was them. They were making this noise with their throats, like but really loud, and and they were moving around <laughs> a lot over in the woods, but we couldn't see anything, and then we, then we heard him. The screaming howler, the big daddy, started coming up the valley, letting out this roar every minute for a half an hour straight. And he screamed for like thirty seconds. He sounded like the Westmoreland PA howler if you've ever mm-hmm. heard that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah, he. We were. <laughs> We we hiked out of there and they let us go. <laughs> that was just one. And if anything, you should know, uh, Ken, should, and you should know about Lloyd Pye. He talks about how the Sasquatch are really the uh, the hominids and they are the missing link um, to us homo sapiens. Yep, that's what he
0: believes, yes. Mm-hmm.
7: I believe, telling the truth, I've really, I felt like a couple other encounters I had when I came close to Sasquatch, I've never saw him. But one other time I heard him speak to me, um, and I just got the sense to leave him alone that they actually, I, I didn't even, I didn't have a light on me at the time. I just heard him speak and, uh, it was in the brush. And yeah, I said, I said, you don't take another step over there. You might fall off in, and go into the river and go bye bye. And I heard him say back to me from about 10 feet away, B- bu- bye bye.
0: So, echoing what you said, oh, that's weird. Okay, I appreciate the call, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, On Skype, you're on the air. Hello. Hello on Skype, George. Nope, guess not. Uh, Let's go back over here and go to the next one on the phone. You're on the air. Hi.
10: Yes, hello, Art. Hello, Cam. Can you guys hear me okay?
0: Uh, Yep, just fine. Yep, hi.
10: Okay, Uh, I had a a terrifying encounter. Uh, It lasted about seven hours with something that I'm not really prepared to label. Okay. Uh, I was hoping maybe he could uh, tell me what he think it could be. Uh, I called one other time about this uh, when you had Linda Godfrey on. Oh, yes. It was, yeah, it was in Pennsylvania at a place called Otter Lake and, uh, at the at the closest it was about a foot and a half from where i was yes. and it had uh, had a very human kind of features to its face with elongated ears uh very large human hands uh a very long thin arms uh like a like a white kind of wool or, or something like that all over it that it had uh its legs almost appeared to be like what you would see in like a, like a satanic like goat god kind of thing, you know. Yes, and uh, it had like these very large yellow glowing eyes, and uh, it had the two things that were like bird-like. Uh, none of which were wings. It was uh, the way that it, it moved its head and uh, the way it seemed to uh, be very aware of its environment. And the other thing was the sound it made when it was deep in the woods it was like a very loud two-tone bird screech almost. So I mean, I, I've just been baffled by it ever since.
3: Any oh, comments? That is pretty remarkable. Um, well, you know, the first thing that kind of springs to mind is, you know, you said you're in Pennsylvania, and of course they have the uh, the great legends and sightings of something known as the Jersey Devil, which is primarily reported down in southern New Jersey, but there are some crossover accounts from Pennsylvania. Now, did you say, you said this creature also
0: had wings? Did you say... Actually, unless I'm mistaken, this caller is coming from Trenton, New Jersey, right?
10: Uh, Yeah, I used to live in Trenton, New Jersey. I still have a Trenton uh, phone number. Okay. Uh, But one summer we were out uh, camping at a place called Otter Lake and uh, that's when the that occurred
3: yeah well it sounds like a chimera kind of a mixture of, of different animal characteristics humanoid and some animalistic um, you know it, it could actually fit very well within the paradigm of flying humanoids because as we've been discussing for the whole show they take all shapes and forms uh, it's almost as if they're shape shifters in, in some respect um, but you know uh, if nothing else Art, you get a reprieve here because the eyes are glowing yellow instead of red right. right I was going to say that not quite as
0: scary. What but, is blowing but, me away Ken is that we are getting so many calls from people who have seen something like this.
3: Yeah, well that's you know that's the way it happens when you uh I think the vast majority of people that have had these experiences obviously for you know for obvious reasons are are fearful of ridicule and having their credibility and and character questioned but uh when you create a climate or an environment where you where you can talk about these things in an open setting, then yeah you know I think a lot of people have seen these things, whatever they are or encountered these things, and uh you know have never come forward so this is this is
0: awesome, yeah, I appreciate it uh back in New Jersey or not New Jersey, Pennsylvania anything else uh
10: just uh, I just want to clarify that this one did not have wings and uh, oh, it didn't no okay. Eyes. Okay. Were were no uh, less uh, scary than any kind of red eyes. They were huge, and mm. uh, if it stood, I'm six foot eight, and if it stood up, it would probably be a little bit taller than I was.
3: That's mm-hmm. right.
10: So it was well, absolutely. It, it also
3: much. reminds me of something known as the Goat Man. And the goat man is a strange creature that's been reported around North America. It's kind of got a kinda similar to the uh, mythological Greek satyr, you know, kind of like a a human form with the lower half of a goat and kind of a
0: demonic aspect to it. (laughs) Okay. Um let's go here on the phone. You're on the air.
9: Hey, how you doing, gentlemen? Very well. uh, Great show tonight. Definitely give me the creep. (laughs) Me
0: too, actually.
9: (laughs) I'm from West Virginia a huge uh, Mothman uh, enthusiast, of course. I grew up about five miles away from where the Woody Derenberger injured cold event happened. So Mm -hmm. I've been interested in that for many years and have done a little bit of research on everything, and I actually go out to the old TNT site um, on a fairly regular basis and, you know, just kind of fiddle around there. I've never really seen anything out there, but in all of my research after you know, I became interested in the mothman and everything, I uh, came across an article, and I guess it was in France in the 1800s, that some French miners, I'm not sure what they were mine, mining, had blown, I guess, part of a mountain out, and there was a uh, some type of flying reptile that was reported that it came out of there. I was wondering if Ken had uh, ever... Across that. So this
0: was after they blew part of the mountain out. That's what flew out.
9: Yes, sir. Yeah, and it, it was um, it was recorded in an actual uh, local newspaper of you know the, it was I think it was like something like forty or fifty miners had seen this thing come out and they said you know it was this huge uh, flying reptile and I guess it was uh, you know similar to like a pterosaur.
3: But. I'm familiar with the account, and uh, I think John Keel documented in some of his books. Um, you know, as strange as it sounds from someone that investigates monsters for a living, I am very skeptical about some of these old newspaper accounts from the old, you know, the late 1800s and early 1900s. I, I get the sense, having read a lot of these types of articles, that, uh, you know, back in the day, they oftentimes would take some, shall we say, creative license with some of these, uh, stories in order to sell more newspapers. So, um, yeah. but, you know, not to totally rain on your parade, there's an even more famous account that's relative to the United States. In 1886 or 1890, according to an article in the Tombstone Arizona Epitaph newspaper, there was a giant pterodactyl that was shot uh, just outside of Tombstone in the Whetstone Mountains. And there was an, actually a photograph taken of this thing stretched out across a barn with several people. Uh, standing in front of it, so uh, it's a very it's known as the Thunderbird photo, and it's an elusive photograph that may or may not exist that could conclusively prove that these giant pterodactyl type thunderbirds exist. But uh, although many people have claimed to have seen this photograph, no one has been able to produce a copy of it in modern times. Wow,
9: That's nice. That's uh, something I'll have to research. And then also, uh, whenever the callers started calling in about the with the hybrid. Uh, uh, you know, creatures. You know, I actually had a, uh, it reminded me of a a time when I was younger. I grew up in uh, central West Virginia in the mountains, pretty rural area. Um, You know, a hunter, fisherman, outdoors person for years. um, This has happened when I was younger, about five or six is me, my mother, and my sister were driving home. We lived um, out in the middle of nowhere on a mountain and we had two neighbors and for the longest time, they had been, uh, reported seeing something that looked like, um, like a fox or a raccoon hybrid. And they said, you know, it looked like a, the markings of a raccoon, but it stood pretty tall, you know, almost, uh, taller than what a fox would stand. It had long, longer legs, had kind of like the hmm. bandit looking, uh, markings on the face, but then it had a ring tail. And they said it, you know, it didn't look like a, you know, like a, a fox. Fox's tail, you know, it's kind of bushy. They said this was a, you know, like a long, thin tail that had rings on it. And I was wondering if uh, it was if it was possible for you know foxes and raccoons to, I guess, uh, mate. Uh, mate, you know, you get a, a crossbreed of those two animals.
3: No, that uh, that would not be possible. And again, just as I was saying earlier, although uh, they are in the same uh, family of Caniforms. Uh, foxes and raccoons diverged millions of years ago, so they're not genetically close enough to to mate. But uh, you do have animals, raccoon-like animals, uh, like coates and uh, uh, red pandas and all kinds of, you know, the, the, the raccoon family is very diverse, and around the world you have different subspecies that look very different from the raccoons we know here in North America, so... Maybe it was an escaped animal or something like that. All right, Ken,
0: uh, we're out of time. The show is ending. Nothing I can do about that. It has been fabulous to have you here. Is there anything you quickly want to promote? Um, You know, I just want people to
3: check out Missy in Alaska on uh, History Network or History 2H2 Network.
0: All right. I'm Missing in Alaska. We can probably do another show on that. Uh, Meanwhile, you're leaving the phone lines open. That's the way to do it, I guess. I mean, full. So, uh, Ken, thank you very much, and we'll have you back. Sounds great, Art. You have a great night. Take care, my friend. Sorry to those of you on the line. Apologize for that. I tried to get to everybody, but the cryptids wouldn't let it happen. (laughs) From the high desert to the 25-time-zoned world... Good night all.